for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. Welcome to Star Joe's Podcast, episode 136, celebrating 50 years of G.I. Joe. I'm your host, Ryan. And I'm Torpedo! Hey! Hey, everybody! <laughs> I'm kidding, this is Robert. <laughs> well, so sub- subtle and subdued after that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just realized I should not do a whole episode being, hey, everybody, all right, hey! <laughs> That would be fantastic. I would a challenge you to... Al- a little torpedo goes a long way. <laughs> I would challenge you to keep that energy level up the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) Do a couple five-hour energies before that. Right. (laughs) That guy was just, like, manic. You'd be like my one buddy in college who drank Jolt Cola, and then he was sitting in a rocking chair going, come on, guys, let's go paint a house. Let's go do something. (laughs) (laughs) That guy sounds like the life of a party. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, Robert and I talked, like, what, months ago, saying... That since no one's not many things are being done for 50 years of G.I. Joe, we should at least have an episode where we talk about as much stuff about G.I. Joe that's come out in the last 50 years as possible. Yes, exactly. And I mean, there's only we don't want to go on for hours and hours. Um, so I mean, there's only so much we're going to fit into this show, but at least acknowledge this anniversary. And we wanted to get it in in December and really talk about the property quite a bit. I'm, I mean, I'm just completely surprised Hasbro hasn't done more. I mean, they launched yeah. a the line of figures, but it hasn't been like a huge, you know, waves or a lot of promotion. I, I was going to say no campaigning or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually approached last year about this time to do the card art for that. Okay. And it's one of the, I regret not doing it, but at the time I was working on Joe Bounds Castle for Marvel some video game concepts. Anyway, I, I was just completely booked and I couldn't take on one more thing. Yeah. And then I found out, I found out later that one of the guys that got working on it was like, all right, we want you to do this card art. Do you know Robert Atkins? <laughs> and they're like, why don't you draw like that guy? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so awesome. That was, that was, that, so that artist got in touch with me over Facebook. I was like, oh, that's very flattering. But <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, and that's the but thing I, too. I do wish I would have been able to work on it. Yeah, and the thing is too, like, um, and I, and I certainly don't want to knock the company because they do an amazing job with all their properties. But I was kind of surprised, even with IDW, that they didn't put out some type of book because they did it for Transformers, which is the 30th anniversary of Transformers. And there was yeah. a book that came out called the 30th anniversary of Transformers, and it was like all it was snippets of all the different comics that came out. And that's really, I mean, you could have just they could have just done something like that for Joe. Um, because there wasn't a lot to the book. I mean, there's some information and stuff like that, but it was a lot of like, here's a single issue from this company, and here's a single issue from this company, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it would have been nice to see somebody do something, but hey, we're going to do something. So that's right. That's what matters. So, um, and like you said, Robert, uh, <laughs> got a lot of information, and, and we could do like 10 hours of talking about G.I. Joe and still not cover everything. Yeah. Um, sure. So we're going to cover as much as we can. 
Um, obviously, we'll probably have a lot of focus on the era that we're most familiar with. <laughs> yes. Um, but we will touch on the early stuff, and we will touch on the later stuff, and, uh, and there'll be a lot of touching going on. Um, uh, what? Wait. Wait. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, why, so speaking of touching, let's talk about the 12-inch G.I. Joe figures. <laughs> <laughs> It's going downhill this already. It's going downhill real fast. <laughs> All right. No, no so let's, the 12 inch figures. Yeah, down. so let's jump, actually jump into the very beginning origins of, of G.I. Joe, uh, which is the 12 inch line. So, um, first off, for those of you listening that don't know this, and I would be shocked if you didn't, uh, G.I. Joe is a line of action figures produced by the company, toy company Hasbro. Um, the initial product offering uh, represented the four branches of the U.S. military. So it was Action Soldier, Action Sailor, Action Pilot, and Action Marine. And later on, there was actually also an Action Nurse. So, <laughs> yeah. I, Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. For all the, for all the male nurses out there, I'm fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I... I I don't think at the time, though, they were thinking about male nurses. I think they were just thinking, <laughs> let's get into the girl market and make nurses. So the term GI, do you know what that originally stood for? Uh, no. It actually, infantry? It actually stood for uh, government issue. Oh, okay. There you go. And after the First World War, it became a generic term for the U.S. soldiers. Uh, the origin of the term actually dates to World War One, when much of the equipment issued to U.S. soldiers was stamped GI, meaning it was made from galvanized iron so the gi came from here's your equipment it's made of galvanized iron and then it became their general issued equipment and then it eventually meant the actual soldiers themselves right so uh the development of gi joe led to the coining of the term action figure so gi joe was the first quote-unquote action right. figure well i think that's just part of the good like you said you had action and then branch of the yeah military. you know so it's kind of that makes sense that it was built off of that you know, action figure yeah and the idea behind it was no big surprises they were trying to get boys to buy these dolls and they didn't want to call them dolls right. so that was really the idea and that is like it. one of my biggest pet peeves oh yeah anytime somebody calls <laughs> any kind of action figure a doll like i still can't take it it drives me <laughs> I thought you were saying it's like a big pet peeve, like, it's okay to call it a doll. <laughs> no, it is not okay. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I can't handle okay. it either. So uh, so the G.I. Joe trademark has been used by Hasbro, Hasbro to title two different toy lines. The original 12-inch line that began in 1964, as well as the um, United Kingdom line that was licensed by uh, Palatoy. And was right. known as Action Man. Uh, in 1982, the line was relaunched in three to three quarter inch scale, which is the one you and I grew up with. Right. And that uh, scale allowed there to be a lot more vehicles, play sets, and complex background stories uh, were created for those characters than you got in the 12 inch line. So they were starting to form a team with the 12 inch line, but there wasn't a whole lot of backstory to the characters. So. No, it's just kind of like a stereotypical, this is a version of, you know, like a, a Navy. This is a version of an yeah. Army. You know, it wasn't the, near the unique character uh, development right. as the 80s line. Right. And then as the American line evolved into the Real American Hero series, Action Man in the UK 
changed and became Action Force. Right. So, uh, although the members of the G.I. Joe team are not superheroes, they had expertise in areas such as martial arts, weapons, and explosives, which is what made them cool. Well, it, that was, it really was what made them cool, because that they were the elite, right, of yes. a particular skill. And there were some that were, or most of them were all well-rounded combat soldiers, but at the same time, you know, there's a reason why this particular character is on the team. They have this... Uh, you know, unique. This is what they're good. They're good at, and they're the best. You know, yep. otherwise they wouldn't be involved. Yep. And uh, GI Joe overall, uh, like the toy line overall, twelve inch and three and three quarter inch. GI Joe is in, inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame at the Strong in Rochester, New York, in two thousand three. So. Um, now, with the 12-inch line, that started in 1964, and the initial line went from 1964 to 1969, and, and it's kind of known nowadays as the America's Movable Fighting Man, because that's a phrase and term that was used back then to describe them. Um, with real hair. Yes. <laughs> well, that actually comes after this line. Right, okay. So this, this is the initial one where it was, it was pretty much all plastic. Um, right. So again, the idea behind it was... Uh, was that boys would not play with dolls, thus the word doll was never used by Hasbro or anyone involved in the development or marketing of G.I. Joe. Uh, this is where action figure was the term that <laughs> was created. Except for that one guy who accidentally said it in the boardroom meeting, and he was never heard from again. <laughs> he was fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, America's movable fighting man is a registered trademark of, of Hasbro and was prominently displayed on every boxed figure package. Um, the Hasbro prototypes were originally named Rocky for the Marine slash Soldier, Skip for the Sailor, and Ace for the Pilot. Um, oh, that's interesting. So that was just like the terms that they used when it was still right. in the prototype phase. Uh, before the, uh, and this was before the more universal name of G.I. Joe was adopted. One of the prototypes, this is very shocking but awesome, um, one of the prototypes would later sell in the Heritage Auction in 2003 for 200 thousand dollars holy cow yeah so so one of that initial wave from the 64 to 69 yeah wave one yep. of those one of the prototypes for that that oh the like, prototype the prototype so what actually helped create that line that's pretty awesome so yeah um there was trademarking on the right buttock <laughs> what? of each figure oh i see okay so yeah so they put a little trademark symbol printed or molded in yeah exactly um, so you can look for that on your 12-inch Joes. And uh, other aspects of the figure were copyrighted features that allowed Hasbro to successfully pursue cases against producers of cheap imitations. Uh, since the human figure itself cannot be copyright, copyrighted or trademarked, there were things like a scar on the right cheek of the figure. Um, there was also an unintentional one, which is the placement of the right thumbnail on the underside of the thumb. So they accidentally put the thumbnail <laughs> underneath the right thumb. And then they trademarked that? And then they trademarked that to <laughs> make sure that no one else would uh, can make copies. Right. So then we had the Adventure Team, uh, which was from 1970 to 1976. I think that's probably the more well-known one. Yeah, I would, I would think so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, by the late 1960s, in the wake of the Vietnam War, Hasbro wanted to downplay the war theme. Probably a smart move. 
uh, that had initially defined G.I. Joe, the line became known as the Adventures of G.I. Joe, and in 1970, Hasbro settled on the name Adventure Team. Um, To coincide with the new direction, lifelike flocked hair and beard, uh, an innovation developed in England by Palatoy for their licensed version of Joe, uh, was introduced in the 1970 line. And they also retooled an African-American adventurer that was introduced. Uh, and a lot of these figures came in two versions. There was a bearded and a shaven version. So so definitely breaking some ground, especially in 1970, to have an African-American figure. Um, yeah. I don't think there was probably a whole lot of that going on back then. So... So I think yeah, that, I think so. yeah, I would think that's pretty awesome uh, that they did that. It was also probably one of the weirdest missions I've ever done. Is a guy wanted me to draw, like, kind of like a Toy Story, where he's holding his 12-inch GI Joe figure, and he's about to set it on fire, and it talks to him. <laughs> and, and I was supposed to draw this, and I was like, "That's disturbing." <laughs> okay. And so what I, I, I had him kind of like wiggling in the guy's hand saying, not the hair, not the hair. <laughs> but that's all I could think of. Like, I, yeah. I was like, this is the weirdest. And then I sent it to the guys at IDW and they didn't talk to me for a week. I was like, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> like, I was like, I just thought you'd be interested to see this very weirdo commission. Yeah, I'm not the weird one. <laughs> this guy was the weird one. I just I know, got I like, paid to I draw it. I this for the fun of it. Like. Now, if you're the guy that asked for that and you're listening, hey, great idea. <laughs> no, it was actually this guy's wife and his son that was, they, you know, he's like, hey, he really likes your stuff. He wants a commission. We want to do this for him. So I did it. And they're like, this is perfect. And then he got it. And he loved it. And then now he wants another one. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of putting that off. Like, I don't know if I'll do that. Now, now what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I think he wanted something similar, like one's about to not. Wow. And I was like, uh oh. That, anyway, <laughs> that, at least the blowing up one could be kind of funny with like if you strapped firecrackers to them or something like that. Because I think oh, that's totally what I did with my Joe. That's what I'm saying. I think a lot of kids did that. Setting yeah, fire to them, I don't know about that. <laughs> I was just like melting him. Like, yeah, oh, that's and the fact right. of making it alive—that's I think that's where I have the problem. It's yeah, like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> if you just have it be a toy, it's okay. But yeah. Anyway, okay. All right, so then in 1974, named after the increasingly popular martial arts, Hasbro introduced the Kung Fu Grip to the G.I. Joe line. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This was uh, another innovation that had been developed in the U.K. for Action Man. The hands were molded in a softer plastic that allowed the fingers to grip objects in a more lifelike fashion. It, they, I don't know how lifelike it was, but it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in 1976, G.I. Joe was given eagle eye vision. This is disturbing. I don't know if you ever heard about the eagle eye di- vision. No, I actually haven't. This would creep me the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so eagle eye vision, it was a movable eye mechanism to allow the toy to appear to be looking around when a lever in the back of the head was moved. No, thank you. <laughs> that sounds incredibly disturbing. Oh, my gosh. Just picture that in my head. No. Absolutely no. And this would be the last major innovation for the original line of 12-inch figures. I bet. I, <laughs> that I was a like, horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> I already feel like like when I'm in someone's house and they have those old dolls sitting on the shelf, I already feel like those dolls watch me. Could you imagine something that actually does watch you? <laughs> oh, no. That's seriously one of the things I'm terrified of. Yeah. Like dolls coming to life. Yeah. Like, 
No. No, 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 no. <laughs> So for the first 10 years, G.I. Joe was a generic soldier adventure with only the slightest hints of a team concept existing. In 1975, after a failed bid to purchase the toy rights to the $6 million man, Hasbro issued a bionic warrior figure named Mike Power Atomic Man, which sold over 1 million units. Uh, also added to the adventure team was a superhero, Bullet Man, and the character gained recurring enemies called the Intruders, strong men from another world. So I, I'm familiar with Bullet Man because I've seen him. Oh. As a kid, I don't know if I would have wanted him. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen uh, Bullet Man before? He's, no, I don't he, think I have. He's I got like a... He's got like a wrestler, like like not like WWE wrestling, like traditional wrestling uh, tights. Yeah. If I'm picturing him right in my head, which I'm probably not. Um, and then he's literally got like a cone-shaped bullet thing on his head, like the in in it's like chrome. And he just like launches himself in a battle. <laughs> okay, no, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> he looks ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, comics included with the figures at the time featured uh, Eagle Eye Joe, which, <laughs> going back to the Eagle Eyes, uh, Atomic Man and Bullet Man operating together. So, they showed all three of those guys in a, in some comics, uh, which I'd love to get my hands on some of those. I'm kind of curious what they would have been like. Yeah, no, I was just kind of looking at it. When I put in Bullet Man, if you just search for it, the comics come up first, really. Yeah. So, the... Uh, Venture team was finally an actual team. So that's when you actually first got a real team in G.I. Joe. Mm -hmm. um, the original 12-inch G.I. Joe line ended in America in 1976. Um, from 1966 through 1984, Palatoy Limited uh, produced a British version of the 12-inch G.I. Joe line under the Action Man name for the U.K. market. Initially, these were exactly the same designs as the American versions, and at first, the same military theme, which included figures from World War II. The line later expanded uh, to include all men of action, like football players and other sports figures. Right. In the early 1980s, Palatoy responded to uh, falling sales of Action Man by launching Action Force, which is much like the G.I. Joe Real American Hero. Um, and this was all in response to the then-popular Star Wars line from Kenner. So now we they get in. They were like built very similarly. Exactly. So now we get into the Joes that you and I grew up with. Right. Which is the three and three quarter inch Joes. And the real American hero line went from 1982 to 1994. So it went for 12 years. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of that because there was actually comments from Larry Hama about that saying like, uh, a toy line was considered successful at last if it lasted like two to three years. Right. Yeah. I mean, because it's. I mean, quite honestly, they would they would run out of uh, new characters, right? To build on the universe. Yeah. And they would end up doing. I think it's really G.I. Joe was one of the first lines to do multiple versions of the same character. Yeah. You know, like you would have like. Well. I mean, we, even within the first couple of years of their line, which we'll yeah. talk about here in a bit, you have like a different costume or uniform. Uh, but then you would have character, but then situation-based, like an Arctic snake eyes, right? And then yep. a jungle, and then a city or snake eyes. Or what, you know, it's just all these different versions based on 
uh, situational things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in, so in 1982 is when the relaunch occurred, uh, and it pioneered several tactics in toy marketing, combining traditional advertising with an animated television miniseries and an ongoing comic. So this is the first time that like m- there was multimedia stuff going on to help move a toy line. Right. Uh, the decision to use smaller three and three quarter inch scales for the figures also made it possible for Hasbro to produce a variety of matching vehicles and play sets that further expanded the appeal and the commercial potential for the line. Um, the genesis of the toy line came about from the from a chance meeting in a men's room. At least is the story. Wait, what? <laughs> According to Jim Shooter, the then editor in chief of Marvel Comics, so supposedly. The president or CEO of Hasbro was at a charity event that Marvel's president was also at. They ended up in the men's room, standing next to each other, and I and it says, and I think this is that's how they met, according to Jim Shooter. They were ta- <laughs> they were talking about each other's respective businesses, and it came up that Hasbro wanted to reactivate the trademark on GI Joe, but they were trying to come up with a new approach. Uh, Marvel's guy was like, we have the best creative people in the world. Let me bring in the editor-in-chief of mine, and we'll fix it for you. So supposedly this all started in a men's room, which if I was one of these guys in the men's room, it would have never happened because I, at the most, will say hello in the men's room, and that's it. No, I mean, there would have at least been a buffer urinal. Right. What were they thinking, standing right next to each other? And then going, so what are you doing? So what's going on with you? (laughs) No, I think, um, and then uh, from the stories I've heard from Larry, um, being that at the time, uh, you know, then word got around between the whole editorial staff and, um, you know, who was going to take on the project. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted a licensed property just because of always dealing with that that third party. Right. Always having to be beholden to a board, a committee of non-creative people typically was kind of like the way they felt it was all about. And then uh, nobody wanted it. And, you know, uh, Larry, he had experience, or at least some military experience, and so yep. uh, nobody else wanted it, and he was like, oh, I'll take it, and I'll write for it, too, because I don't mind getting two paychecks. Right. <laughs> and, um, I mean, that was always kind of a mentality. Yeah, and so that's that's what it came down to was just he they had asked uh, you know, half a dozen people before him he was the last office in the hallway yeah and when they got to him they said hey do you want to do this and he's like you haven't got anybody else they're like no they're like oh sure I'll take it yeah and that and from what I understand with him that's kind of what it was I mean it's again looking back on it we're like oh GI Joe's awesome and stuff like that but it it wasn't awesome because there was nothing there yet. Um, it was just this 12 inch line and I'm sure if I'm sure Larry was somewhat familiar with the 12 inch line and he was probably going okay what can I do with this um, now I don't remember did they have the first at least prototypes or at least concepts of the first wave like the first that I'm not characters? sure about I, I didn't look into that to see if they did or not um, I think I think they either had molds made or there was something Larry had to springboard off of okay and so I could I could be making that up I well I know one of the, heard that yeah I know one of the things he had to springboard off of was um, prior to the relaunch uh, Larry was developing an idea for a new comic book called Fury Force 
uh, which, which he was hoping would be an ongoing series for Marvel Comics. The original premise was that the son of S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury, huh, something they've revisited recently. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they did that. Um, So... He was gonna. Uh, the son was gonna assemble a team of elite commandos to battle neo-Nazi terrorists Hydra. Uh, Shooter approached Hama about the Joe project due to Hama's military background, and the Fury concept was adapted for the project. So instead of doing this Fury Force, they did basically Action Force, which was GI yeah. Joe. Um, Shooter suggested to Hasbro that GI Joe should be the team name, and that they should fight terrorists. While Archie Goodwin invented Cobra and the Cobra Commander. So that's who created uh, cool. the opponents. Um, everything else was created by Larry Hama. Yeah. Uh, Hasbro was initially uncertain about making villain toys, believing this wouldn't sell. Which almost seems like the concept that a lot of toy companies are following today is that they make all the heroes and they don't make very many of the villains. Um, I like Star Wars and Transformers seems to be kind of an exception to that these days, and and yeah. the few GI Joe toys that come out. But a lot, I know a lot of the stuff that I see, like the Marvel figures that come out, the um, DC figures that come out, stuff like that. A lot of them, I see a lot of the heroes. I see very few of the villains that come out. Yeah, like in a particular wave, you always have. Yeah. You might have one villain. Yeah. You know, if if maybe you know, not even every time. Like, yeah. Which like is the Guardi- they're like the, the Marvel Legends, the Guardians line that came out. Yeah, there wasn't a villain in that line. Yep. Um, the Captain America one was nice because it had Red Skull, Baron Zemo, and Hydra and AIM soldiers. I was surprised at how many. Yeah, there were quite a few in that one. Yeah, but it's interesting because like I know Chuck and I have talked about it many times. Like that's what captured our imagination when we were kids was you could create actual battles and everything else because you had a fully oh, yeah. formed villain team and a fully formed hero team and uh yeah and there just really wasn't that yeah. before now you can have batman fight batman and that's it <laughs> <laughs> right so um marvel also suggested the inclusion of female joys joes in the toy line so also uh, Hasbro was kind of uncertain about including any female characters. Yeah, and like it's one of, like I can completely see why. You know, sure. Like they're they're all looking for who their demographic is, and there's certainly plenty of girl toys out there. But like that's one of my biggest regrets, or something I kind of wish there was more of. Now, as a kid, I don't think I would have bought it. Yeah. But as an adult, I really wish just built into the canon there was more female characters. Yeah. Well, and I think the female characters. Started like you started realizing as a kid the female characters were just as cool once like the cartoon and you started reading the comics. But just as if they came out with just the action figures, yeah, no one would have bought the female characters. Exactly. Like I think seeing like Lady J was just one of my absolute favorite characters in the cartoon. Yeah. And of course, partly because of the amount of speaking that she had, and I kind of had the hots for her. So. Sure. I was right there. <laughs> I, was I was right there with you. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so of course, so then when the figure came out, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, let's do that. And then, yeah. you know, but, but yeah, like I think without the cartoon, um, and if I had a, that figure and another one, I certainly wouldn't have bought her over another figure. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, each G.I. Joe figure included a character biography called a file card. And Larry Hama was largely responsible for writing these file cards, especially the first 10 years. 
which I absolutely love. How oh yeah, unique. he made each character, and he, from what I've heard, is that he's based quite a few of them off of just people he knew, or yep. you know, family members and all that kind of stuff, just their backgrounds, where they grew up, all that kind of thing. Yep, and but it was a brilliant idea because it really helped fans connect with a particular character. Like, yep. there's so many people who connect with the Joe that was from their state, their area, yeah. At times, yeah. Yep. And uh, or have like a the same first name as you or something like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he he did draw from much of his own experiences in the U.S. military to create the file cards. Um, every year, Hasbro and Marvel would meet up to discuss the upcoming toys and marketing. Larry Hama was given free reign by Marvel's editorial uh, when this would occur. Both the toys and the comics would become a great success, the comics being Marvel Comics' most subscribed title at one point. Uh, but Jim Shooter has said uh, sister company Marvel Productions, who handled the cartoon, overspent on production and had a critical success but a financial disaster with the show. <laughs> oh, wow. So, which I didn't know that either. I, I just oh, assumed yeah. the cartoon was just as successful as everything else. Um, it's at the time, though, it was some of the best. Oh yeah, animation on TV too. So it's like you can tell they put time and obviously money into it. Um, yep. But apparently that <laughs> that doesn't help the bottom line. Right. So. Now GI Joe's increasing popularity supported an array of spinoff merchandising that included posters, T-shirts, video games, board games, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, merchandising. Yep. In yeah, 1985, nice. both Toy and Lamp and Hobby World magazines ranked G.I. Joe as the top-selling American toy. So we, we talked about before we started recording that 85 seems to be that golden year, the sweet spot for G.I. Joe. Um, that, yeah, exactly. It, it had the best, I think, line uh, or released wave of figures. The most yep. figures were released. Some of the best vehicles came out then. I think just their design team was, you know, it was just a machine at that point. You know, yep. They were just really pumping out great creative stuff breaking yeah kind of uh you know just rules as far as what had been done before and yeah just setting a mold for uh, for other lines in the future i mean some of your most recognized characters and most popular characters came from that year so right um now the original file card uh file cards in- included a picture uh indication of allegiance so joe or cobra or dreadnought or and what have you the code name of the character, uh, the function of the character, the real name, the quote-unquote real name of the character. Right, again, their specialty. Yep. His or her serial number, uh, their primary military specialty, their secondary military specialty, their birthplace, their rank grade, uh, a paragraph detailing the background of the character, such as his or her education, upbringing, training. and a, Hobbies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A quote, and then a quote from an unidentified source, usually giving the own, uh, the owner an idea of the character's personality. Right. So that's what this was just brilliant, and I think it was also added that level of authenticity because of Hama's background, just in oh yeah, you know, just knowing what you know these various weapons are, and just um, you know, just in general, like being able to do, to be specific about that kind of stuff like kind of made them feel like real soldiers in a lot of ways yeah. but then adding that little bit of that quote and that little bit of character yep. really set them apart and you that. saw a lot of toys afterwards follow that at least to some degree like giving some backstory like I know Transformers every single one of them had their uh, 
history of who the character was on the little file strip on the back and then you got like with them you got like what their powers level power levels were in each and various different categories I and loved stuff that that was so awesome yeah so you had a lot of Gabe. companies like following after following this type of uh route of a file card of sorts after because they saw how successful gi joe was so um the 1987 this is so groundbreaking oh yeah absolutely so the uh, 1987 G.I. Joe toy line saw the release of the Cobra Hypnotist Crystal Ball. Nice. <laughs> of the year, let me tell you. Whose file card was supposedly written by best-selling horror, horror novelist Stephen King. Which, again, did not know that. So. I'll bet uh, we can thank him for that. <laughs> <laughs> the file card might be very interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we have that the character, not so much. <laughs> I would love to hear who's. We don't have time to go into them all tonight, but like, what's your favorite file card? That's what I want to hear from people. Oh yeah, that'd be cool. Because there's so many just gems. I mean, just beautiful, like hilarious. Yep. They're just their obscure hobby or quotes that just crack <laughs> you up. I mean, but what are some of your favorites? Like, I want to hear from people. Yeah, that would be awesome. Or just even if it's not the full file card, like you said, just that. That bit in the file card that yeah, <laughs> what's what sets it apart is like just one that we've got to know. Like you either thought was so really cool, or you were like, what? <laughs> or absurd, <laughs> especially in hindsight. You know, which one file cards don't hold up? You know? <laughs> so uh, by 1988, the file cards no longer contained details about education and focused more on the character's upbringing uh, or what he or she did prior to joining the GI Joe team. Uh, in addition to the regular information, this new design of card also included a listing of which vehicle the character is licensed to operate. Uh, and, that was cool. Yeah, and this would remain uh, unchanged until 1991. So for the next four years, this was the format they followed, which I actually really liked the idea of like which vehicles they could operate because, as we know from the cartoon... In the cartoon, they could operate any vehicle, anytime. <laughs> it was open season. I tell you what, man. You, you get dogs and parrots piling in a skytractor if you let them loose. So then in 1991, there was a major overhaul to the file card format, and the paragraphs and quotes were replaced by a short quote from the character, uh, followed by a paragraph that hypes up the character's abilities. So. I think that's kind of when the file cards went downhill. Yeah, they well, just start. They just lost their uniqueness, and I think I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, Larry wasn't doing them anymore at this point. It yeah, was just kind of formulaic at that. You know, there just wasn't anything that really made them special at that point. But it's it's that initial run through the '80s of those file cards. Yeah, just fantastic. Well, and this is really when the whole toy line started going downhill. Well, that's true too. I think that bit. you know, I mean, it's a long run of figures. So sure. I mean, it's phenomenal with that long, but at some point it's going to lose steam. You're going to run out of ideas. You're going to be rehashing yep. character types or that kind of thing. So, you know, it's bound to happen eventually. Yep. But, yeah, I think I think across the line they were struggling. And the other thing to mention, too, is Hasbro, like many other companies, has a lot of turnover. Oh, yeah. You know, of people who are arts or committee members that are, you know, approving various types of things or wanting to revitalize a property at this point. And... So it can always get pushed and pulled in new directions every couple of years because you might have a completely new staff at that point. And there's some people who stayed on throughout at least a long period 
But uh, I, I, I'd be curious to know if anybody was on staff from, like, say, the early 80s through the early 90s. Like, Yeah, I all the way through or something like that. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. So the first 11 characters were introduced in carded packs while four others were bundled with vehicles. The first series of action figures had straight arms with elbow joints. Uh, while it's com- it is common for many characters to share the same mold for producing body parts, it was m- much more noticeable in the first year as for the original 13 G.I. Joe figures. Only six head molds were created. Right. <laughs> so, which I noticed, to, I was looking at some of the figures today, and for the longest time I thought I had Grunt as a kid. And I think actually I had Zap. Okay. And, and when I look at them, I understand why I didn't know which one I had. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, the other thing I'd like to hear is what was your first Joe? I mean, that's always neat to find out from people. Yeah. Um, it, it was just, it's crazy how many times I've heard that Flash yeah. was the first figure that they bought. So it makes me wonder if there was more of him produced or if he was in a more accessible store. Or, I don't yeah. know. It's like I've heard it from so many times that that was somebody's first character. Yeah, I feel. I think the like I said, I think the very first figure I owned was was Zap, mm-hmm. um, and for so many years I thought it was Grunt, but <laughs> <laughs> but then when I looked at the pictures, I was like, no, mine had the lighter green, so it was it was, it was definitely Zap um, right. that I had, and I didn't have a lot in the early years, but I had some. Um, but, yeah, I completely missed out on the early years. Like I was just too young at that right. point, and I had well, grown up on the cartoon. It wasn't until my friends collected all the. Joe figures and I had He-Man and Turtles, but yeah, um, it wasn't until like the '90s that I was even going back and getting, or probably late '80s, because I think the first figure I got at, at Christmas was Zartan. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. I can look that up super quick. What year he came out? Yeah. So there was there were three unique molds that were assigned to Stalker, Snake Eyes, and Scarlet, and that's pretty noticeable when you look at them. Right. Um, while the other ten character you utilize, it's looking pretty manly. Let me yeah. <laughs> while the other ten characters utilize one of three generic heads, so it's like, which one do you get? Yep. Um, with the success of the first line of toys, Hasbro expanded the line the next year with new characters and more original body part designs. In 1983, swivel arm battle grip articulation and some extra tweaks were added to the new characters and the existing figures in order to make them uh, more poseable. And then in 1985, which is again the sweet year, uh, the base of the action figures' heads were given a ball joint, which gave the figures' uh, heads the ability to look up and down. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's when I started getting figures, because I just looked at Zartan was released in 84, but he was re-released in 85 with the updated like movements and he had like he could change colors and all that kind of stuff yeah and that's the that's certainly the one i had so it was probably it was 85 that i first started getting gi joe figures and yeah. again i didn't have many until later though so then like i said as we discussed when i was looking up information it said the years from 1983 to 1985 are considered by many to be the golden years of gi joe Real american hero as many of the most popular characters were introduced around this time um vehicles and play sets became bigger and seemed to Top the design of the previous year, culminating in 1985's impressive USS Flag playset, an aircraft carrier that measured seven and a half feet long. Oh snap! Which I think it sold for like a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, it was like around a hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah, 
And, know what? Maybe even 80. Yeah, between 80 and 100. Yeah, and I'm like, there's no way you could ever do that today. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm just going to, this is the only year we're going to do it, but I do want to give like a rundown okay. of, the, of the names of the figures that came out in 84. Okay. Okay. So this is a series four, you know, so this is like the fourth wave. Right. And now when you get a wave of figures, you're lucky if there's like six or, you know, eight figures at the most. Yeah. But rarely is it that many. All right. So in alphabetical order, there's Airtight, Alpine, Barbecue, Bazooka, Buzzer, Crimson Guard, Dusty, Eels, Flint, Footloose, Lady J, Quick Kick, Ripper, Shipwreck, Snake Eyes version 2 with the visor. Right. Snow Serpents, Televipers, Tomax, Torch, and Zaymont. Then there was, uh, the mail-in was Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, I don't know what Listen and Fun was, but that's like hmm. a way to get the figure. Okay. And it was, uh, I think, another type of contest mail-in thing. And that was Tripwire, but version 2. Okay. And then you had Vehicle Driver. So the vehicles that came with these also. Crankcase, Frostbite, Heavy Metal, Keel Hall, of course, for the flag. Right. A Lamprey and Toll Booth with the bridge layer, baby. <laughs> but anyway, all of those figures. Yeah. You know, I got real quick. I can count many. That's that's a lot of figures at one time. And twenty. And I would eight, say twenty-eight figures. And I would say it's a good chance that if you asked people just out on the street that knew anything about GI Joe, if you asked them to name a GI Joe character. More times than not, they're going to name a character from that list that you just named. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Like a Snake Eyes, you know that everybody recognizes. Lady J, Flint. Yep. You know, Quick Kick. All these, all yep. these people. Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> yep. So, uh, so in toy stores, two of the largest play sets of the entire line were introduced: the GI Joe Defiant Space Shuttle and the Mobile Command Center. So, outside of the USS Flag. Um, before the end of the year, the G.I. Joe Special Team Battle Force 2000 was introduced in time for Christmas. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah. yeah, this this to me is kind of when things start going south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's people, and there's a lot of our listeners, too, and I, I don't mean to knock it because there's a lot of our listeners that grew up with this time period of G.I. Joe, and they have fond memories of it because that's what they grew up with and everything. Mm -hmm. um, the toy line continued to sell well despite its lack of multimedia support. So at this point, there there was no cartoon anymore. Right. Um, yeah. The comic was still going on, but the comic was starting to slump down um, mm -hmm. later in the later years and everything else. So there really wasn't a lot of support. It was just basically the toy line being strong based on past history of the toy line. Right. Uh, a new enemy, Destro's Iron Grenadiers, was introduced. That is pretty cool, though. Yeah. And uh, the new Cobra lineup was composed mainly of Viper-type henchmen. So you, did, you didn't get a whole lot of uh, special figures like Fireflies and stuff like that. You just got a lot of henchmen. Yeah, a lot of alley vipers. Yeah. And, you know, all the different you know, types of vipers that would come out. Yep. Uh, another Which I do, I do actually really like. And in fact, oh, yeah. I think what I might do in my... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do another GI Joe month in in March, and I think I'm gonna do at least a week, maybe two, depending on how many I can fit in of just daily vipers. Just vipers, yeah. So all the different vipers. Well, and the thing is, it wouldn't get boring because they're 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 so different from each other. Like, yeah, I mean they're still very unique. You got, and see, I like the comics where you get to know the face behind the the helmet or the yeah, mask yeah. of the vipers because you got to think that just like in GI Joe in Cobra, 
if you're going to become a viper instead of just a trooper you have to have some kind of special skill or ability yeah right and in fact the saw viper in the comics was like one of the deadliest like most intense bad guys they came across you know what yeah. I mean? and he was just a viper yeah you know so um i think uh i really like those issues or cartoons where you got to take the viper seriously like it's not a small thing you know i, I love yeah. that a concept so well and that's i got like i think it was a, a variant cover for i think it was for the gi joe special missions that came out recently um not or not that long ago but i got a variant cover for i think it was like issue two or something like that and it's all it is is like all the different vipers that are like it's it's like a profile of each kind oh, yeah. on the cover yeah. and it was just like it was very artsy looking but but it was kind of cool because it listed all the different subgroups and stuff like that it was really neat yeah um so another gi joe subgroup was created uh which was called tiger force and it was oh a, yeah, Tiger Force. It was a line of classic characters and vehicles recolored with tiger stripe camouflage patterns. <laughs> That's pretty much what it was. <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is when I was I wasn't collecting figures at all anymore at this point. Um, the cool so thing I, I don't have any kind of affinity or, or connection to the Tiger Force, but yeah. I think there's people, a lot of people who do, you know, who are just a bit younger than us. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I actually liked the Tiger Force and the the other one I was going to mention, which is the Python Patrol. I liked the look of them, um, and I think they're it's kind of a cool idea. I the one thing I did like was a lot of times you got crossover of vehicles because you would get the water moccasin on the Joe's Tiger Force team. Well, that that is true. That's one thing I did like, yeah, because you could get a a, co- a, a Cobra vehicle, right? Yeah, but then it'd be on the Joe's team. Yeah. Yep. I do remember liking that concept. Um, so the relative success of Tiger Force the year before led to the introduction of Slaughter's Marauders and Cobra's Python Patrol. Right. So the, the lackluster performance of 1989 convinced Hasbro to scale back on production. They concentrated on the action figure lineup and reduced the number of new vehicles for that year. Now when did the, the J.I. Joe movie come out? Uh, that would have been 87. Yeah, because we're gonna get into all that a little bit later, but yeah, that would have it would have been uh, nineteen eighty seven is when that came out. So, um, I'm surprised it didn't have the Slaughter's Marauders come out sooner than. Yeah, that's I didn't I don't have notes as far as when that exactly came out. So I it looks like um, it would have had to been eighty eight eighty seven eighty eight when Slaughter's Marauders came out because it talked about in eighty nine is when they scaled back on the production. Because of the oh, lack. okay, well, I guess it would have either come out the same year or early yeah. the next year. So yeah. That's, yeah, that's that makes sense. So then Hasbro concentrated on action figures rather than vehicles and came up with new gimmicks for them. Special teams such as Ninja Force. Yeah, this is when it really gets bad. <laughs> Eco Warriors. No. And Star Brigade. <laughs> that's like Eco Warriors is. That's the that's that's when everything went neon, right? Yes, that's when everything went neon, pink, green, orange. <laughs> Which again, it's one of those things I look back on it and I go, okay, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. But then I look at the actual toys that came out then, and I'm like, wow, those were bright colors. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, at the same time, that was in. You know what I mean? Just yeah. really, like, what were the color of your shoelaces then? Yeah. They were like a neon. You yeah. Know what I mean, like, and you had Captain Planet going on, so you oh, got the God. so you got yeah. eco warriors, you know. Um, so yeah, they were kind of they were kind of doing the same thing as Adventure Team did when with the twelve inch line, like they were getting away from the military aspect 
and more focused on like the environmental stuff because that's what was going on at the time. So yeah, um, Star Brigade. I have no idea what the hell they were thinking when they did that. <laughs> um, and I know there's people again. I know there's people out there that love Star Brigade. I've looked at it and I just and I love science fiction stuff and I love space and everything. Obviously with Star Wars, I don't get Star Brigade. I just don't. <laughs> no, I think it's again. It's just people in a boardroom trying to yeah. to revitalize the property. Come up with it was like, well, we've done. Land, sea, and air. What have we done? Space. That yeah. sounds great. Kids Let's... love space. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. you see an old man saying that. You know, yeah, exactly. Kids love space. <laughs> In the final two years of the line, characters who were not part of any subgroup were branded as part of the all-encompassing battle core. Um, the background artwork for the cards was replaced by a design featuring laser-like lines. And uh, the Star Brigade subseries was revamped with a more science fiction storyline in- involving an extraterrestrial enemy called the Lu- Lunartrix or Lunartix Empire. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> that's jumping the shark. Yeah. That was, that was, that's too much. <laughs> you know, it's funny because then when we worked on IDW books and we were doing like the mass device storyline and everything, we like, everybody was on, on our backs being like, Jejo, it's not sci fi. And I'm like, are you, have you read? <laughs> Do you remember Star Brigade? Have you, do you, were you around during Star Brigade? <laughs> like, we're not saying there's extraterrestrials, man. We're just like, right. we're not going that far. It's just advanced technology. Get off my back. Yeah. I, I really didn't have a problem with that because, again, like you said, you were basing it on some form of reality. Um, it wasn't like they were hiring aliens to help them build the base. They were just expanding their technology to something that they could, you know. Well, and it's and it's not like we were coming up with new things that G.I. Joe's never heard about. Right. It was directly from the cartoon. <laughs> right. Anyway, okay. So then we have the characters from uh, Street Fighter Two video game became part of GI Joe lineup in 1993. That was very weird. Yes. <laughs> and although the line would officially end in 1994, design elements of the GI Joe figures and vehicles would continue in later toy lines, such as the line based on Street Fighter motion picture, which is a horrible, horrible movie, um, um, as well as another based on the game's equally popular competitor, Mortal Kombat. So, um, I know I talked with a, a friend of ours, Sam, not that long ago, and I was communicating with him, and he said, oh yeah, G.I. Joe did Street Fighter, and they also did Mortal Kombat. And I was like, I don't think they did Mortal Kombat. I know they did Street Fighter. And it yeah. looks like the reason why he believed it was Mortal Kombat was because they were just using the same you know, figure creation to create those right. figures. Right, they had the facilities. To exactly. Do that. So Hasbro would have... Uh, done like a licensing rights in a similar way that say like IDW pays a licensing fee right kind of a thing then uh, Hasbro would have just been the they you know they had so or Capcom or you know whoever owned yeah who owned, whoever owns um, Mortal Kombat you know would have just paid Hasbro for their facilities to create the figures well. yeah and that's a and yeah so they basically they created figures that looked like GI Joe figures they just weren't official GI Joe figures because the right. line was dead at that point so um, so also the 1985's Striker vehicle was also converted to accommodate larger figures for Hasbro's Stargate line. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh um, no, I think I had heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So that the was in '95 you said that was in uh, well they took '85's. Awe Striker vehicle. And, and, then and the Stargate line. I don't know when Stargate came out. It 
want to say it was 95, somewhere around it there. Was 90, it was in the 90s. It was definitely in the 90s, yeah. Well, it would have been out, and, and after, like, the Joe line was done. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, I'm curious, when did the, I don't know, if, when did Joe come on Star own a um, official lines? Or not lines, but, you know, like, customs. Yeah, I'm not sure when they started doing, like, the collector club and all that. Yeah, well, yeah. when that started. I'm not sure. Again, that's one of the things that I just didn't have in my notes. <laughs> no, I mean, again, there's so many aspects to yeah. history, and that's, and that's kind of a big one, especially in recent, in the last two years. Oh, yeah. Years, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's been getting bigger and bigger as far as the figures go, um, as far as popularity of those figures and everything. Because so, there's really, unfortunately, not much else out there. So, um, Now, this I found interesting, too. So the line ended in 1994 which was also the 30th anniversary of G.I. Joe. So, really, Hasbro not doing anything for the 50th anniversary is just par for the course. <laughs> because they didn't, they decided to cancel the entire line at the 30th anniversary. <laughs> so... <laughs> just I, know, I guess we're... I guess we're I guess I'm we're just saying. I'm just, anything being produced at this point. Right, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not trying to bash Hasbro. I'm not a Hasbro basher. I actually love Hasbro stuff. But the 30th anniversary, they said, yep, let's get rid of Joe. (laughs) So um, Hasbro did release, however, a series of 12-inch figures and three-quarter inch figures based on the original action team uh, from 1964. So they did celebrate the 30th anniversary a little bit. Okay. Um, the toy line last. So the overall toy line lasted from that lasted from 1982 to 1994. This is just some staggering numbers. Produced well over 500 figures and 250 vehicles and play sets. Oh my god. That's a lot. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's just that is staggering. Now, granted, some of the figures are variations of the same one and everything else, but... Yeah, of course, but just the sure production. Like yeah. uh, like I was saying, I would be curious what Star Wars' numbers are. And I'm sure G.I. Joe is more, because G.I. Joe was just, like, yeah. a phenomenon in the 80s. Well, and they didn't, I mean, they didn't start... For Star Wars, they didn't start making, like, every character until later. Like... When Star Wars figures started coming out, there wasn't like a figure for every character that was in the bar in the cantina. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. That came much later when they started doing, you know, Power of the Force and all that type of stuff. That's when they started doing like every character in Star Wars ever. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm sure there I, there was not a lot each wave for each movie of Star Wars, um, especially when you compare it to something like GI Joe. Um, so in 1994, Hasbro transferred control of the G.I. Joe toy line and brand name to the newly acquired Kenner division, who promptly canceled a Real American Hero toy line and replaced it with the new Sergeant Savage and his Screaming Eagles toy line instead. Hmm. Uh, after brief revivals in 1997 and 1998, the toy line was revived as the Real American Hero collection in 2000 to the mass market. In both cases, previous molds were reused and some characters had to be renamed due to copyright issues. Uh, Another relaunch was done in 2002 under the theme of G.I. Joe vs. Cobra and new designs and characters were introduced. So, uh, going into another, this is all going into the different toy lines, so after 1994. So, from 1997 to 1998, there was a 
Toys R Us exclusive series called Stars and Stripes Forever. Wow. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I wasn't until I came across this information. So in 1997, G.I. Joe returned in a limited Toys R Us exclusive line. The Real American Hero Collection, as it's called, included team packs of three-figure groups uh, grouped together by a common theme such as Commando and Cobra Command and Mission Packs, which featured classic figures packaged with small vehicle like Cobra Flight Pod or a Silver Mirage vehicle. Mm-hmm. The Stars and Stripe box set was also released featuring members of the original 13 Joes from 1982. The line continued as a Toys R Us exclusive in 1998. One of the rarest G.I. Joe figures, the so-called Pimp Daddy Destro, right. <laughs> was released in 1997 in the Cobra Command team pack. It was immediately replaced by a standardized version of the Destro figure. The Pimp Daddy Destro figure was so named for the fact that he had on a leopard print accent and his famous open collar. Right. Only a a handful were released into the market with only one verifiable version mint in box and two loose versions known to be in existence. Good grief. Uh, it is believed that the versions of Pimp Daddy Destro that made it to the market were production samples, uh, as opposed to true variants, that were changed prior to release and thus were never meant to be seen in public. <laughs> <laughs> but then when they did the 20, I, think, I can't remember if it was a, a con exclusive or if it was just part of the 25th anniversary line, they actually did create Pimp Daddy Destro because it became such a legend that, that they're like, let's, let's make it. Yeah. Might as well do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I have that figure <laughs> in my collection, in fact. So, um, n- not the original cause the original, there's three in existence. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we had from 2000 to 2002, there was the real American hero collection. So in 2000, uh, in the year 2000 real American hero collection continued this time, it was a wide release. Figures were sold in two packs and continued using the original molds as well as a, as kit-bashed figures made from parts of various molds. Mm. The uh, wide release of Real American Hero Collection con- continued through 2001. Then in 2002, the line was limited to one wave, which was only available to online retailers. Also in 2002, a set called the Sound Attack 8-Pack was released as an exclusive to BJ Wholesales Club and Fred Meyer stores. So, I have no idea what was in that 8-pack. Maybe some of our listeners could let us know. Um, Then we get into the line that I know you and I are both familiar with, and probably a ton of our listeners are familiar with, which was the 25th anniversary line. Um, Yeah, and I think think a majority of most people are getting back into... Like for me, like I collected as a kid, and then I didn't. I mean, they obviously they weren't putting out a lot of product in between either. Yeah. So it was it would have been the hardcore collectors that were still involved during that time period. But the 25th anniversary relaunch is when I started seeing Joe figures out. Like, oh, I remember all these characters, and they were. Oh yeah. You know, the uniforms were updated figure molds based on classic designs. Yep. So recognizable. They came out in those large sets of five to six figures. Uh, you know, a Cobra set, a Joe set. You know, I just remember seeing those on the stores and being like, "What?" Yeah. And jumping, and that's also right about 
When, when, what year is this? This was 2007 to 2009. Yeah, exactly. I started drawing G.I. Joe in 2008 for IDW. Okay. Right. And I needed reference for an all-striker. That's where it all went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Up to that point, I wasn't collecting any toys. So, <laughs> and now um, look at your studio. <laughs> <laughs> now it's just it's exploded. Right. So, um, I did, yeah, I needed reference for an all-striker. And I went and picked one up, and then I was that. And I remember seeing those sets. I remember seeing those sets previous to that, and being like, "Man, those those are cool." And I think I thought about picking them up, but I wasn't buying toys at the time. So I was just yeah. like, "Oh, that's awesome that they're putting them back out." And and I almost bought it a few times, and then they weren't on shelves anymore, and I regretted it, um, at least for a while, you know, because they. I didn't even know how toys. I didn't understand waves, any of that stuff. Yeah, and I was like, I thought they just stayed on shelves forever. This is weird. <laughs> and um, anyway, so that yeah, right in that time period is right when that got me into toys again. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. I remember like you were saying like I thought toys were just on the shelves forever. I remember as a kid like if I couldn't find a cer- certain figure, I never knew about like waves of figures. I was just like, oh, I can't find Flint. Well, I must. He must just not be at this store. Yeah. Forget the fact that I'm looking for a Flint in 1988. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just figured they were always out. You right. Know, I don't know. I never even put more thought into it than that. I don't know why. And I'm sure most people go through that until you really start getting into toys. Yeah, probably. So then uh, in 2007, uh, it was the 25th anniversary of G.I. Joe American, Real American Hero toy line. To commemorate the event, Hasbro released a G.I. Joe Real American Hero 25th anniversary collection of newly sculpted. 100 millimeter figures as opposed to three and three quarter inch scale so right there's a slight difference uh they were based on classic and new designs of many of the line's best known and most popular characters um the 25th anniversary figures replaced the classic o-ring construction with a swivel chest feature and increased the number of points of articulation beyond the standard shoulder elbow and knees to include swivel wrists, ankles, and double hinged knees. Yeah. Um, originally, well, also just the basic proportions of the figures, like thinned out, yeah, were a little leaner, more, more um, detailed sculpting, less uh, barrel chested, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Just, yeah, and and all the accessories, you know, were just so detailed and. And it was just blowing the old line away. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know if you knew this or not. I found this real interesting because I did not know this. Uh, originally planned uh, the 25th anniversary line to consist of only two sets of five figures each. One set of Joes and one set of Cobras. Right, and those are the sets I was talking about in like those boxed yeah. sets. And that's all they planned on doing. And then, I don't doubt it. Hasbro's weird like that. Yeah. And then, and, but then, you know, again, like... The bean counters up in the right. They were like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> the board crap. room was like, "These are selling out like crazy." Yeah. So it was so well received by retailers and collectors that they decided to go ahead and expand it into a full, full-fledged toy line that ran through 2009. Uh, when Hasbro moved to figures based on the movie GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra, that's that's in 2009. Is was kind of like the last series of figures (laughs) which there are some good figures in there though they're not all bad well the movie all bad (laughs) all bad (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was the Pursuit of Cobra line that was phenomenal. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the the 30th anniversary and Pursuit of Cobra line, I think they had potential to just all the collectors at least would have just lost their mind. Yeah. Right? Could have put that out and produced on a regular basis and but I think the delay in the movie and all the there's just so many things that affected mm-hmm. Hasbro from the top down with when it came to that movie that I think there was just no recovering. Like it just really nailed them hard. Yeah. Well, another thing I think, uh, and I had notes of this. Uh, another thing I think kind of hurt them a little bit because um, collectors kind of backed off because they felt like it wasn't part of the collection. Was uh, the later releases also did not include the 25th anniversary branding. So they took that branding off of there and said, "Here's some more Joe figures." And the collectors that were just trying to collect the 25th anniversary got like, a nostalgia. Oh, the line's done. Yeah, yeah, so they, they were like, they "The line's done." Out. So why should I buy more? So yeah, well, I mean, I was picking up 25th anniversary uh, figures and vehicles. I wasn't a completist on the figures. I was just grabbing the ones I knew and liked. Yeah. But once they came out with movie designs, yeah. I, I was done. Well, and. Uh, I was what I was saying as far as the Rise of Cobra ones that they weren't all bad. The ones I'm referring to that weren't all bad was like the ones that weren't based on characters that were actually in the movie. So like you had Helix that came out as a figure. No, that figure was fantastic. And it was an awesome figure, and I loved yeah. it. And I found I actually got mine on a clearance rack because no one was buying it. And around the time that it was on the clearance rack was when I was reading the character in the comic, and I was like, yeah. well, now I want a figure of this character so luckily i was able to pick her up um you also had like shipwreck uh in like a winter gear and stuff like that, that oh was, that's true that was yeah. very cool so a lot of the cool figures that came from rise of cobra were not the movie characters no, yeah <laughs> so and then in 2000 from 2011 to 2012 uh there was the 30th anniversary release which included yeah. some figures from the gi joe renegades cartoon which some of those figures are actually really awesome. They are, and it's. It, I always remember that being a very weird line because you had some very detailed that was just like a step up from the 25th anniversary line, just yeah. the level of sculpting and the amount of accessories kind of just bumped up a notch. Yeah. But then there also being the Renegades figures, and I was always confused as to what they were trying to do. I mean, it's kind yeah. of like they kind of half-heartedly put out both lines at the same time. Yeah. Um, I have, they would have just done a very short, maybe one or two waves of the Renegades, hit all the major characters, and then, I, I don't know, I just remember being strange choices what they did for the 30th anniversary. Yeah. Line. I have, uh, from the Renegades line, I have the Tunnel Rat from that line. Yeah. Which is an awesome tunnel rat figure. It's a good design, yeah. Yeah. So, and he came with a boatload of accessories. <laughs> I think I have the Duke and the Snake Eyes from that line. Okay. Um, maybe, I forget who else came out. I've heard the Storm Shadow is really awesome. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one. I don't have that one, but I... Yeah. That is a good one. Tooncast is dedicated to the cartoons we grew up with. 100 episodes and more make up one of the GCRN's most popular podcasts. Join hosts TFG and Mike, Optimus Solo, Terror the Rising Star, and tons of guest hosts. We also have voice actor and writer interviews. 
Tune in to TuneCast as we look back on the cartoons that defined us as geeks. You can find TuneCast on iTunes and the web at www.geekcastradio.com. Tune in. Pixels in the Animation is the next cartoon review podcast series in the GeekCast Radio Network's long history of review series. We've had Transformers, He-Man, and Mask as far as the cartoon review podcasts we have done. Now we bring in TV's Mr. Neil as he and TFG and Mike break down nine video game cartoon series. Steve Megatron will join us for the Mega Man and Sonic episodes. We will be reviewing and analyzing every episode of the Mario, Zelda, Captain N, Mega Man, Donkey Kong, and Sonic cartoons. You can expect us to go in-depth and also talk about the game franchises that spawn these cartoons. So tune in summer 2013 as we find the pixels in the animation. Hey, I'm Gary. I'm Mike. I'm Chuck. And I'm Justin. Join the four of us every week on the Internet's number one and longest-running G.I. Joe podcast, What's on Joe Mind? It's Joe news, reviews, and interviews like you've never heard them before, delivered right to your MP3 player. Our guests include Jason Marsden, Kevin Michael Richardson, and Matt Yang King from G.I. Joe Renegades, Larry Hama, Robert Atkins, and John Barber from IDW Publishing, and many more from around the online Joe community. Yeah, it's guys talking about Joe. Think of it as Joe talk meets sports talk. And we make fun of Chuck. Right. And we pay again. Come on, Chuck. We're just kidding. Kinda. Sometimes Chuck makes fun of himself. Right. And we. Okay, seriously. This is just getting ridiculous now. It's What's on Joe Mind every week on the GeekCast Radio Network, InsidePulse.com, Stitcher Smart Radio, and iTunes. Download and listen today. I suppose I still can't say something about Transformers, can I? Good. No. What about sports? That sounds good. Yeah, that's all right. Yes, that's right. We have traveled to Eternia to enter Castle Grayskull. Join Optimus Solo and TFJ and Mike as they find themselves telling tales of Eternia. We cover all things He-Man in this 45-episode-long podcast. You can find us on iTunes and www.geekassradio.com. By the power of Grayskull, we all have the power. Grab your helmets because it's time to assemble Mask. The GeekCast Radio Network has launched Mask Mayhem with your hosts Optimus Solo and TFG and Mike. This podcast covering all 75 episodes of Mask will feature in-depth analysis of every episode, talk on the toys, and more. Mask Mayhem will run 30 podcast episodes. You can find us in iTunes and on www.geekcastradio.com. Get your spectrums ready as podcasting is the ultimate weapon. So you ready to talk some some Joe comics? Yeah. Since uh, that's kind of in both of our wheelhouses a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so we had the uh, Marvel comic run, which uh, is the start of it all, which was the G.I. Joe Real American Hero. Uh, mm-hmm. And it w- was published by Marvel Comics from 1982 to 1984, so right with the toy line. Uh, G.I. Joe was also the first comic book to be advertised on television. Yeah, and it was just part of this whole cross-promotion thing that just made G.I. Joe such a big deal. Um, and just the fact that a comic book could be on a TV ad, you know, just yeah. a commercial, um, was fantastic. And it just kind of 
it's sad that you know that didn't happen on a more regular basis i guess the idea is that you don't really see tv ads for like people magazine either right I mean, it's just kind of like you see it on the shelf every day so that's the advertising but the but thing that's just, interesting is a different thing yeah and the thing that's interesting we've talked about this before it's like take that concept and put it into these marvel movies and dc movies that are coming out like just put right before the movie starts like follow further adventures of the Avengers at your local comic shop and give like a website for like a comic shop locator website or something like that. Well, I mean, you were talking just very recently, but just like or a quick ad for Marvel Unlimited. Or, yeah. You know, just like, just promote the comics medium instead of it all being about the next movie or, you know, the next video game. Yeah. Tie in or whatever. And know, I will say uh, Marvel Unlimited might get me to stop most of my Marvel comic buying like the actual paper <laughs> copies because it is awesome. <laughs> yeah. There are certain titles I'm going to always want to get and have the most up to date because it, it does take, I think like six months for, uh, before a, a newer issue comes yeah. out. So like if an issue comes out this Wednesday, it'll be six months before I could read it through the Marvel unlimited app. Yeah. But for certain titles, I don't care. Um, like I would still get all new X-Men or whatever, but there was, yeah. Yeah, but there's not, I've I've almost I haven't gotten it yet and I've almost pulled the trigger uh, so many times we getting the Mar- but I'm like I'm already very behind on reading all my <laughs> comicsology stuff and yeah. all the trades I have on my shelves and I'm like if I get this am I going to really like my money's worth just because of the amount of time I have to read so yeah. I haven't done it yet. Well, and I looked at like the Avengers. I'm like, man, I can go all the way back to the beginning with Avengers and start reading some yeah, of those. That would be cool. That'd be I, the way to do it, man. Yeah, and then uh, I told you I started reading the I, Ultimate Spider-Man line, so yeah, that was just awesome. And they have all the issues for it's Ultimate It's also a good way to try something out because if you read something and you're like, this is... I'll go and find it in Trader Hardback if it's available or, or yeah. if it's not available. Like... See, there's a lot of times where I'm not going to go out and just buy a run yeah. of 30 old issues of Avengers to see if they're any good. Right. You know what I mean? Or if I want it more complete. And it might be uh, that's not collected in an omnibus or in a, in a trade. But if I go and read it on the Marvel Unlimited app and just really love it, want to have a physical copy, and it's not available in the graphic novels or trades or whatever, then I would go get the separate issues and get it bound. Yeah. Which me and Travis are always having <laughs> texts back and forth and emails back and forth about. He's all showing off his bound collections and I drool. And I'm like, this is. I don't. I'd love to do bound collections, but I don't know where to start. And this would be a great way for me to kind of test out what runs or you know what lines I like and then yeah. go and f- give me a purpose when I go to cons to pick out books and get them bound. Yeah. So um, going into the the Marvel run here, so it ran for 155 issues and it was mostly written. Uh, by Larry Hama. Oh, yeah. And it was notable for its realistic character-based storytelling style, which was unusual for a toy comic at the time. Yeah, uh, it was what were like, didn't, why they didn't want to be involved with it, because they were always kind of like fluff-type comics that didn't have a lot of substance and were just there to help sell the toy. You know, so there was no real, like, room for characterization. Yeah. And Larry just made it. He was just like, well... If I have control over who these characters are, then they're going to be good characters. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I always found this interesting. Uh, Larry Hama wrote this series spontaneously. He never knowing how a story would end until it was finished. That's the way he writes, and it drives editors insane. (laughs) 
But I can understand that to a point because I'm like, you know what? The story's going to lead me where it needs to go. I'm someone that I do, like when I'm writing something, I, I do have an end in mind, but I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. And sometimes that ending changes based on what I'm writing. So Yeah, but you can even write the briefest paragraph of saying, here is a very, very general outline of maybe one or two of my major players and a plot point. And Larry will not even do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, can you imagine being an editor trying to put yeah. solicitations out for a book where the writer doesn't even know what's going to happen two months from now? Right. And like, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't know where the story arc is actually ending. No, we have to draw covers three months in advance so that, or, or <laughs> maybe six months in advance. So right. that they're done in time to be in solicitations. Right. But what are you going to draw a cover when you don't know what's going on? <laughs> 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 um, so uh, there were back then at least not so much anymore but back then he would actually give the artists uh little sketches of characters and major well, scenes and, and that's the biggest reason why was because he would just be like hmm. you know he often that would he would do a drawing a little sketch and he's an artist himself and he started in the comic industry as an artist but yeah. then he kind of realized he found out how much writers were making, right? Which wasn't as much of artists per page, but then they could sit there and write an issue in a week, where it right. took an artist thirty days to draw it. Yep. He was like, "Well, I could write four books a month and make four times as much, so I think I'll just be a writer." Yep. And that's that was just his choice. So then, but he still did all the sketches and layouts for almost every cover for the series. Yep. And the reason why is because he would sit there and, well, who would be cool to draw, and. He was also being shipped toys on a regular basis anytime there was new characters that needed to be introduced. And he would write the file cards for them, and that would get him thinking about the character and how he could incorporate them. So yeah. he would do a quick sketch of just a scene, just something interesting, doodling around, really, of all these new characters coming in. Yeah. And that would help him generate ideas for the next storyline. So, in fact, he was doing these layouts just as a way to generate ideas. Oh, yeah. And then he would pass the layout on to the artist to keep them busy doing something while he was writing the next months, you know, what they're going to be doing. Yeah. So then we I, had, always, I always wondered, I was like, was he just being controlling, like, what he was doing all the, the layouts himself? I was like, no. And then I realized after talking to him, he's like, no, that's how he even got the ideas for the next book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I figured out where I was going with things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just through yeah. drawing it out. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, this is really cool. So G.I. Joe was Marvel's top-selling subscription title in 1985. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was outselling Spider-Man everything. Yep, and it was receiving 1,200 fan letters per week by 1987. That's insane. So there's a reason why, I mean, there was multiple reasons why we picked the show to be Star Wars and G.I. Joe, and then everything else was kind of in between that. There was multiple reasons, but... When you look at even just the comic side of things, when which is what we were we started the show doing, right. um, Star Wars saved Marvel from bankruptcy when the comic came out because it was it was Marvel was kind of struggling around the time that Star Wars came out and the Star Wars comic. G.I. Joe or Star Wars? I'm talking about Star Wars. Oh, okay, it was struggling when Star Wars came out, right? It started when Star Wars came out, so Star Wars helped like reinvigorate Marvel comics. So it, right. it kind of brought it out of any possible bankruptcy back then. In the late 70s. Yeah, late 80s. 70s, early 80s, and stuff like that. Then you have G.I. Joe that comes out in the mid-80s and just is infusing it Marvel with even more people watch, you know, reading and everything else. Right. So 
I mean, these were those are probably the two biggest comics that Marvel had in this time period, in this era. So, um, and I've heard this many times. The series of G.I. Joe was credited with bringing in a new generation of comic book reader, since many children were introduced to the comic book medium through G.I. Joe and later yeah. went on to read other comics. And I've heard that from a lot of people. So many people I hear at conventions and being involved with the property and especially the comic side of the property. Yeah, I hear that all the time, that G.I. Joe. And the yeah. first 20 issues of G.I. Joe was their first comic book ever. Yep. So the first issue was published in June of 1982, and it contained two stories, both of which were written by Larry Hama. Uh, the first story was Operation Lady Doomsday, and it was drawn by Herb Trimpey, and uh, and he drew most of the early issues, and he also wrote issue number nine. Uh, the second story, Hot Potato, was drawn by Don Perlin. Uh, the Baroness, who appeared in this, uh, in this first issue, is the earliest example of a G.I. Joe character whose first appearance in the comics predated the conception of their action figure. Right, and that was, yeah, that didn't happen very often. Right. Um, issue number 11 established a pattern for the series in which every so often Marvel would publish an issue introducing a group of characters and vehicles that represented the New Year's toy offerings. So remember when we were s- saying we read, like, I remember when we covered issue number 11, we are like, all of a sudden we had all these new characters show up. Right. Well, when you're reading it now and you're looking back at it, you're like, Wow! All, the, all of a sudden, we have all these characters. Gung Ho is showing up, and Snow Job is showing up, and all right. like where did all these characters come from? Well, those were all the new toys that were coming out. <laughs> so. Yeah, and it it makes for so much fun reading, going back and reading those because, yeah. um, this <laughs> is kind of like the cartoon when Quick Kick just happens to be up in the Arctic, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, film filming the commercial, you're like, this is a very, um coincidental <laughs> there's a dude up here that's true not right why is he on the joe team again you know back then <laughs> um they would go on a mission and be like who's this new guy gung ho holy crap he's beaten you know yeah. you know it's just uh it's so fun to go back and see like that first issue where a character is introduced and just their character really shines yeah i mean it's especially when they're it's your favorite character oh yeah like that issue where they're they come in it's like boiled down what makes this character unique because that's going to be in that issue it's always yeah. so, so fun to read those absolutely um, an early highlight of the uh, of the comic series was 1984 Snake Eyes The Origin Part 1 and 2 which was in issues 26 and 27 oh man the best uh, this issue established Snake Eyes complicated background and tied his character into many other characters both G.I. Joe and Cobra and Larry well, Hama considers this to be his favorite storyline from the Marvel run yeah and I mean it, it's so funny when you, you always hear uh, you hear the same story from Larry every time you go to convention he does you know panels and question and answer things yeah so I've heard the story a number of times but you know the set of the first 30 issues I mean the, the three seminal comics are 21 silent issue silent interlude yeah and 26 27 which all center around snake eyes and storm shadow but in silent interlude like again Larry didn't know what was going to happen in the next three or four issues right uh, let alone the next issue but right <laughs> So in Silent Interlude, what happened was it was all down to timing. The only reason there's no dialogue in that book is because they simply ran out of time in the production schedule to send it to a letterer. Nice. That, that was it. I mean, they were under the gun. And so while they were working on issue 20, Larry, this is one of the few times he went ahead and wrote a, a script ahead. Yeah. And was like, look, you just start working on 22. 
And then what he did was he kind of did a very basic outline and then drew issue 21 in a day. Yeah. He was literally doing like that 24-hour comic book challenge. <laughs> yeah. Like the original 24-hour comic book challenge. Right. He just did very, I mean, tighter than his like sketchiest drawings you've seen. But at the same time, pretty rough layouts, and then just sent them to the inker to finish, which was wasn't completely, you know, uh, it that was kind of typical of the day that the inker was the finisher more than every yeah. line was detailed. But anyway, sent it to the colorist, and he said, "How much time do we have? Not enough time to send it to a letterer and get it back." He said, "Well, we can save if we can save you know three days and just get it colored and put it out." Then he was doing his layouts with the idea that it does if it doesn't need dialogue, it would work. Yeah. And that's where you really get a sense of how masterful Larry's art and storytelling is. Yeah. I mean, just that is a very difficult challenge. He, but he, he just looked at it and said, it doesn't need words. Here you go. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you get the idea for the story. And then his, his idea that Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow were even connected wasn't realized until the very end of that book where he thought, hey, what if they had the same tattoo? Yeah. That was the only thought that crossed his mind. He went in, put it out there, and the book went out. And then he kept thinking about that over the next few months. So when 26 and 27 came around, he wanted to go back and explore that. Revisit that, yeah. And that's kind of what led into it. But it's just just interconnected the G.I. Joe universe uh, in such a way that they would keep going back to that over and over and over again because it's such a strong, great idea. And that reminds me of stories I've heard about like Chris Claremont with X-Men where he would put a little thing into an issue and then months later go back to it. Like he remembered that it was there and he would think about it over the next several months and then he would create a whole storyline based on that one thing that seemed to be kind of insignificant or a minor little thing. Um, right. But they were all plot points that, that he kind of kept track of. So it sounds like kind of something similar to that, which is was probably the writing type of style back then was to say, hey, yeah. let's set up for future stories. We don't know when we'll get to them, but we'll get to them. So, Yeah, you didn't have guys writing for a trade back then. You didn't have guys rotating in and out of arcs every five or six issues. You just put somebody on a book, right? Yeah. You're going to have big overarching storylines and then short one or two issue storylines. And yeah. then because they know they're going to be on a book for 30 issues if they want to be, then they could just throw something out there, see if it sticks, get some kind of fan reaction. If it does come back to it, you know, six months from now. So then in uh, 1986, uh, echoing the events portrayed in the TV series, G.I. Joe number 49 was published, introducing the character of Serpentor, uh, genetically created amalgam of history's greatest warriors. Uh, And Serpentor (laughs) played a significant role in the Cobra Civil War, which occurred in issues 73 through 76, which is a landmark story event that involved nearly every G.I. Joe and Cobra character vying for control of Cobra Island. And that was 73 through 76? Yep. Yep. I, I remember that storyline. And um, What year did what, what year did you say that came out? That came out in... Let's see. Go back to the notes there. Didn't say what year. So uh, in 86 is when issue 49 came out. So this would have been probably 88... Okay. Right yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that was right when... Okay, so I always, always take things back to X-Men. Like, in X-Men, at the time, was that when they were, like, headed down... They were in Australia and stuff? Yeah, then? yep. Okay, that's when I started reading comics, was okay. right then. And so I remember seeing this on the shelves and, 
and started picking up kind of X-Men especially, but G.I. Joe, was, this is when I was getting into G.I. Joe, and I remember the cartoon and saw this issue, and it had so many characters. Yeah. Like, this is one of the first G.I. Joe comics that I started picking up, was right in this time period. Yeah. Then uh, in the early 1990s, uh, sales did begin to uh, drop, and and so did some of the quality. Uh, and uh with in 1994 with issue number 155 due to low sales hasbro canceled a real american hero uh which is the same year the toy line was canceled uh between the lack of new toys and the cancellation of the second tv series three years earlier the comic book could not count on the same cross-platform support right uh and the target demographic had also changed considerably uh larry hama was quoted uh, saying it it reached the end of its half life until GI Joe and Transformers toy books that had life expectancy of one to two years, and three years was considered a long time. So when you're dealing with toys, you know, if it lasted one to two years, that was good. If it lasted three years, that was considered a great success. Yeah. GI Joe lasted twelve years as a comic. So um, Hasbro didn't expect the toy line to have much life in it. Also, the market had changed completely. He goes, when I first started doing uh, store signings, there were lines around the block and it was all 10-year-old boys. He goes, the last time I did a store signing uh, in New York City, everybody was over 30. And two of the guys who showed up were mailmen who had skipped off their routes to get their books signed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The final issue featured a standalone story titled A Letter from Snake Eyes. And this was uh, narrated from... Uh, Snake Eyes' perspective as he tells his story through recollections of his many comrades in arms who had died over the years. Yeah. Um, shortly after the final issue, uh, G.I. Joe special number one was released in February of 1995, containing an alternate art for issue number 61 done by Todd McFarlane. Yeah, and it's just got, like they had to capitalize on that. I mean, yeah. they had this artwork just sitting in an archive. Yep. He, as an artist, had exploded, and yep. an image was so big, like, so how can they capitalize on it? So they yeah. re-released that. Um, and I know we talked about this once before on, on a previous episode, but McFarlane was the original penciler for issue number 61, but his artwork had been rejected by Larry Hama as unacceptable. <laughs> I love it. So Marshall Rogers was brought in to pencil the final published version, in the years following, McFarlane obviously became a superstar comic artist. <laughs> this guy's going nowhere. <laughs> and Marvel eventually decided <laughs> to print the unpublished work. All right, then going into just uh, briefly touching on some of the spinoffs that came out of the Marvel run. Uh, in 1985, G.I. Joe, Real American Hero spawned an annual publication called G.I. Joe Yearbook. Right. And this uh, included, it was kind of like more like a magazine type issue. And it contained articles about the animated TV program, a summary of the comic book's plot up to that date, and one or two original stories that were written by Larry Hama. And that ran until 1988, so for three years they had a a yearbook. Um, In 1986, uh, the success of Real American Hero led Tomorrow to produce a second title called G.I. Joe Special Missions, which lasted 28 issues. And Herb Trimpey was the artist for most of the run, with Dave Cockrum providing pencils on several issues. Um, spinning out of G.I. Joe number 50 and set in the same continuity, the series presented more intense violence and a more ambiguous morality than the main title, 
and the Joes faced enemies that were not related to Cobra, which I thought was really cool to be able to see them going up against somebody other than Cobra all the time. There's also very just action. I mean, all all the all the issues were, but I mean, I just remember the being like the the covers yeah. being more instead of being so dramatic, were always action based. Yeah, I mean, just like like them just being the very memorable group shot, you know, in the middle of the heat of battle. Type yeah. Shot. And then uh, there was also two miniseries that were produced. Uh, the first was G.I. Joe Order of Battle. It was a four-issue miniseries running from December 1986 to March 1987, and that reprinted the data found on the action f- uh, figure file cards with some edits and uh, new art that was done by Herb Trimpey. And then the other uh, miniseries was uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers, which was a four-issue miniseries running from January to April of 1987, and the story had the Joes and the Autobots joining forces to stop the Decepticons and Cobra from destroying the world. Um, This was the start of good G.I. Joe versus Transformers. Oh, yeah, yeah, you couldn't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then we also had Action Star Serial, that came out uh, in 1985, and this was a serial uh, based on G.I. Joe, and there was multiple variations of the serial box, which featured different characters from G.I. Joe. Uh, among them were Duke, Gung Ho, Shipwreck, and Quick Kick. Uh, the serial uh, was said to have tasted like Captain Crunch, and I remember having it, and it did. Um, mm. The reason I mention it with the comics is. Uh, there was a comic that came in this with this serial. Oh, cool. Uh, the television commercial for the serial depicted a boy making his way to a bowl of cereal led by, uh, by the character Duke. And after eating the cereal, the boy flies into the air following another G.I. Joe character named Starduster. Uh, this was the only time that the action figure Starduster appeared in, the an- in animated form. He was never part of the cartoon television series... Oh. But Starduster did feature, uh, was featured in three out of continuity mini comics in the Action Star serial. <laughs> and I actually have those comics because uh, Aaron from Roma Collectibles had packs of them. Uh, oh, and wow. I picked up from him. So th- that will be covered in a future Kessel run. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So um, then we had, let's see, oh boy, there's so many different companies. So then we had uh, Blackthorn Publishing. Right. Uh, they did six issues of G.I. Joe 3D and one annual. Uh, it didn't contradict the Marvel series, but they're not considered part of the canon from the Marvel series. Right. Uh, and then they did three issues of How to Draw G.I. Joe. Oh, okay. Uh, which I'd like to pick those up sometime. Yeah. And I know that Blackthorn Publishing also did like a 3D version of Star Wars also uh, back then. They had like a lot of licensed properties that they did yeah. like short little things on. Um, then we had Dark Horse in 1996. Uh, did a four-issue miniseries called G.I. Joe Extreme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think I have one issue of it or something like that. I want to get the rest of them because I just want to see what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, which I knew about the miniseries, I didn't know that there was also an ongoing series after that, but that only lasted four issues also. <laughs> right. Ongoing, yeah. And they dropped the title, uh, or dropped Extreme from the title. So it was just called G.I. Joe at that right. point. Um, then there was a comic company called Bench Press Comics, uh, who gained the rights to G.I. Joe in 1999. And... 
there was going to be two series, much like Marvel. They were going to have like a regular main G.I. Joe title, and then they were going to have one like Special Missions where there was going to be like a rotating cast. Yeah. Um, they were supposed to get Larry Hama writing, but negotiations stalled with with getting him as the writer. And while that stall was going on, uh, the company went bankrupt. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they never produced anything. Right. Um, there were three sample pages that you can sometimes find online uh, to check them out. I've seen the cover of one of the issues. It looks just like an old Marvel cover. Yeah. So, um, then we got Devil's Due. Which was part of Image, but then they branched off on their own. I think like around uh, like the mid twenties of the their GI Joe. Yeah. They did a GI Joe Real American Hero, uh, which is also known as Volume Two, or it's sometimes called GI Joe Reinstated. Yeah, and it's a com- uh, it ran from two thousand one July of two thousand one to two thousand five. And yeah, and that first issue. Do you have the numbers on that? Uh, I. It went uh, was went for forty three issues. Oh yeah, so the but the first issue that came out, um, oh man, I think if I'm quoting this right, it had sold over a hundred thousand copies. Wow. Um, which uh, Steve Kurth was the artist on yep. it. Um, Josh Blaylock was running. He kind of owned Devil's Due. Yep. And uh, acquiring the licensing rights for GI Joe. Um, wasn't the hottest commodity at the time, but at the same right. time, he would have had to pay a yearly annual licensing fee. Yep. So he took the risk. I mean, oh, yeah. he, he ponied up the money and took a shot. And it yep. was just, it hit at this amazing kind of pocket of time yep. in comics where uh, comic sales weren't through the roof by no, any means. You, no. know, you would have like the big boom in the mid nineties and then 97, 98, like things crashed. And for about three to four years there, sales were terrible. Yeah. And, uh, it was when Marvel went bankrupt and all this kind of stuff. Um, so he had this for a book, a property to come out and with an issue one to sell a hundred thousand copies was a big, big deal. I mean, it was the number one selling book for the first you know, at least half a dozen issues. Well, and like you said, it was just the right time because this, to me, was the first time there was a resurgence of the 80s properties, in comics at least. Because you had this coming out, you had Dreamwave's Transformers was coming out, you had Wildstorm doing the Thundercats at this time. yeah. Um, You had Voltron. um, Within a a couple years, yeah, Devil's Due was putting out Voltron also. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, there was this 80s nostalgic boom that kind of happened right in the early 2000s. And it all started with this G.I. Joe number one. Yep. Um, but the money from that, I mean, you got to think, it was selling $3 a, $3 a book, selling over 100,000 companies copies for a, for a company, Devil's Due, uh, who was going through a creator-owned company like Image. Yeah. Right? So uh, Image only took a flat rate fee off of every book they produce, yep. right? Which is... It ranges for every book, but it could be $2,500 or something per issue they produce. Yeah. So you got to think this issue number one pulled in $300,000. Yeah. And all they had to pay Image was their $2,500 contractual fee. Yeah. Right? And then they had to pay the artist, right, to create the book. I mean, most comics can take anywhere between five, ten, and $15,000 to produce one issue. Right. Depending on the, the rates of production, you know, your artists, your writers, all that kind of stuff. Right. So the rest of that, literally, you, know, you subtract 
over the course of a year what you would have paid to Hasbro. It's not like if a book does well, you have to pay Hasbro more. Right. Like they get their flat rate for the license fee. All that money went back to Josh Blaylock and Devil's Due as a company. Yeah. And that that boom of those first five to six issues funded their company for six years straight. Yeah. So all everything else that Devil's Due put out through 2005 and 2007, all was based on the success of those first like four to five issues of G.I. Joe. Yeah, and I, um, I'm sure that's going to be a s- series that in a future Castle Run I'll, I'll cover or will cover or something like that. Um, but there is a review of at least that first issue on our website. Uh, if you go to starjoes.com and you click on my name at the top, you'll it'll take you there's like tabs at the top you click on my name there is a review of the first issue from devil's do there's like a link there that you can click on and it'll take you to the review and it gives a synopsis of the story it gives my review of the issue uh talks about all the creators the variant covers that were made all that type of stuff so there, there's a lot of good information about that first first issue that came out so yeah um and all the characters that were in it too like it was just it was awesome 80s nostalgia because they incorporated a lot of the Marvel run concepts, but they also incorporated just a touch of the cartoon into it as well. Yeah, it it, it took itself seriously, but not too much. Right. It was kind of like the version of the, the character that everybody remembered, but we were all older. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we wanted, you know, that nostalgic feel, but a little more mature yep. storytelling and, and dynamics and stuff. And it was all there. Yep. And they did a really good job capturing what we wanted from G.I. Joe at the time. Yep. And they it picked up, uh, the main story picked up seven years after the Marvel run ended. So it was a continuation of the original Marvel run. But there's like a nice gap there. So yeah. You can, it allows for character development and character change. Yep. For them to kind of do their own spin on it. And they did in uh, 2002, there was uh, G.I. Joe Battle Files created by devil's do which there was like a joe one there was a cobra one and then there was a vehicles one right uh which was really cool and then there was gi joe frontline which lasted 18 issues and i didn't realize this till i looked it up i loved gi joe frontline but i didn't realize that the concept behind it was that these stories took place between the original marvel run and the devil's do run so they kind of okay i didn't i didn't understand that either yeah. yeah they kind of pick up they kind of fill in that gap in fact the very first story arc takes place one month after the marvel run ended oh no so. i didn't know that I don't, and I, in fact i don't think i read that line i read you know the reinstated and i read i think reloaded yeah we're gonna talk awesome. about that yeah, one too that yeah really but uh but yeah the front line i really liked that series especially some of the first story arcs but evidently that's uh that series was meant to uh, take place in between the Marvel run and the Devil's Due run. So. Yeah, and it, and it didn't last long. I mean, the, re- no. the reinstated was the longest running. Yeah. Kind of version or volume. And then after that, it was hard for them to keep any of the... Kind of yeah. like IDW, really. It's, yeah. It was hard for them to keep any of the titles to run la- longer than 20 issues or so. Yep. So they did... Uh, g- there was also some miniseries, G.I. Joe, Master and Apprentice. There was actually two miniseries of this. So there was Master and Apprentice 1 and Master and Apprentice 2. And I, this was, um, I went to school with a guy named Chris Lai. He was in my um, graduate program and a really cool guy. Um, and so this was his first published work out of, out of school. Oh, very he was, cool. So he was the artist on that. Okay. That and then there cool. was a, a Rashikagi Showdown, which was a, sh- a one shot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fans don't even consider that as part of that continuity or canon. 
uh, because there was like some magic involved with that storyline and everything, I guess. But, right. But it's still a fun story. Um, then we had G.I. Joe America's Elite, which takes yeah. place one year after the Devil's Due original run of A Real American Hero. Mm-hmm. So and this one, they had uh, Stefano Caselli come on as the artist, and it was uh, he was he previous to this he had worked on a few of their superhero titles. Like they tried to do the superhero launch of books that yeah. never really happened, but they brought him on as an artist. And this was when exclusive contracts in comics really started becoming a thing, and so Devils do sign up to an exclusive contract for about a year, and he had, they had him working on America Z pretty regularly. But right after that, he moved to Marvel, and since then he's he's been pretty regular at Marvel. But yeah, and I haven't read a lot of America's Elite. I have almost all the issues except for one. And uh, but I've heard it's fantastic. Uh, it did last for thirty six issues. Yeah, um, that was a good one. That was my first cover work. Was issues thirty three and thirty four. Yeah, which I think thirty three had Destro and Baroness on it. Yep. And uh, kind of an action shot, and then thirty four, I believe it was, what had all the Cobra characters on it. Yeah. So that was an insane process. And this story, uh, America's Elite, took place, like I said, one year after The Devil's Do, uh, A Real American Hero. But then there was a one-shot that came out called Hunt for Cobra Commander, which uh, that story took place during that one-year gap. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So I thought that was kind of neat. Um, then we had uh, Devil's Do also did uh, a Storm Shadow series, which lasted for seven issues. That came out in 2007. Yeah, for those who might know him, Sean Murphy is a art, big artist at DC now. Yep. I also went to school with him. And the reason why we have all these connections is because we went to school with a guy named Michael Sullivan, who he was in our graduate program also. I mean, he graduated about six months to a year ahead of us. And in that year, he had done an apprenticeship at Devil's Due as an apprenticed coffee boy, kind of a thing, more than anything else. <laughs> and then started becoming an, uh, an assistant editor and then became an associate editor, and when his apprenticeship ran up, you know, it was just like a six-month apprenticeship, and he was already an associate editor. Yeah. And he'd gotten himself involved in so many of the projects that they just couldn't let him go. So he got hired on full-time. Nice. And then I think at the time, Mark Powers was the senior editor at Devil Zoo, and then he moved on. Just his family moved, and there wasn't any kind of falling out or anything, but he just moved on. And the, the next obvious choice was just that... Mike had been there the longest, knew everything about the project. And so he got promoted to senior editor nice. within a year of working for this company. And then we all graduated. <laughs> so <laughs> he was giving us calls being like, hey, so what do you have to do? We're like, nothing. He's like, hey, do you want a job? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's where uh, Sean Murphy, um, and he's done a lot of stuff for DC, Batman and Punk Rock Jesus and Joe the Barbarian wake you know a number of books yeah um and uh so he did the covers on this storm shadow book which was really cool um i remember really enjoying that and andrew rob or no no it's not andrew robinson what's who drew it i forget he had a crazy style but they got larry hammond to come and write it nice um which i remember for mike that was like a dream come true because michael sullivan the first book he ever read was gi you know comics he ever right. read was gi joe he was just he is a G.I. Joe encyclopedia. This guy just knows <laughs> everything about the Joe characters. So he was like, I get to work with Larry Hammond. He's like, I'm freaking out. 
it was such a nightmare. <laughs> like <you> just, <laughs> this is where I heard all the behind the scenes, like of how to edit Larry Hama, and it was like it's just almost <laughs> impossible. So, kudos to all the guys at IDW, or maybe Larry Hama has changed, but I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, also- it was, uh, but that was that was cool. They, that's right when I started working with Devils Do was right around this time. Yep, and we're about to get to uh, a title that you worked on. Um, but first, there was uh, in America's Elite. They also did uh, special missions issues, which were a series of one shots. And there was stuff like uh, special missions Brazil, special missions Antarctica, and stuff. And and those were really cool one shots. I really enjoyed I, those. That that was my first inking where I inked special missions Antarctica. Okay. And I inked special missions Tokyo. Very nice. Over Tim Seeley. So I actually worked on both of those. Very um, cool. And it was. Uh, <laughs> It was funny because when I was working on Tokyo, yeah, when I was working on Tokyo, we had moved from the East Coast back to Illinois. And I remember because it was right in the middle of the move, that was a deadline I had to get done. And there was all these tanks rolling down the streets of Tokyo. And I just, I was up to literally the last minute I had to get these things done. <laughs> and so I recruited my family <laughs> to help me out. And so I had a sweatshop of uh, three of my brothers my wow. sister Elaine and my sister Sarah, and bless her heart, Sarah can't draw worth anything. So I just had her <laughs> ruling out the panel borders, and uh, and I, I still had to go back and fix some of those. And then my sister Elaine was inking tanks. So that's her first unofficial official credit in comic books. She was actually inking all the tanks that were rolling their way down through Tokyo, the streets of Tokyo. Nice. Um, and then and we got that done in time. It was great. We all just stayed up all night. And I just had them inking this little plant in the background or this little figure in the background. Like, That's hilarious. I was just managing a sweatshop. It was crazy. That's awesome. Then you the should, next you should reinstate that. Do what? You should reinstate that. And just... I, I know. They all moved away. That's what I'm, tra- <laughs> I'm training my, my children to become my new sweatshop. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, so the next issue, the Antarctica, Elaine came in and helped me on that one as well. She inked all the penguin in that issue. Nice. <laughs> Which I think is mainly on the last two pages, but... <laughs> She inked all the all the penguins, and I believe uh, when Snowjob Snowjob is like they're swimming in that issue. Like yeah, like Joes come up to Antarctica and they see all the Arctic Joes like swimming and like and Snowjob I think is eating an ice cream cone and I think she inked that. Nice. <laughs> anyway, so Elaine she's she's helped me out it, it before. Nice. Then they did, um, there was uh, declassified issues, uh, which there was Snake Eyes. There were six issues of, uh, of Snake Eyes, which I know you did a couple of them. Yeah, I came in at the tail end of issue two, and I did all of issue three. And that was my very first published penciling work. Nice. And it shows. Nice. <laughs> but it was a fun story. I mean, we And that's the really one issue I can't out. find, of course. Like, I think it's issues three and four I cannot find. Um, I mean, I could find them online at eBay if I really wanted to, but like, like oh, I have all the other issues. I can't find the Robert Atkins issue, so <laughs> they burned them all. Right. Um, no, it's it's a, it was fun to work on because it, we we would be given in the scripted reference a particular Marvel panel. Okay. And the idea was that we were filling in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, fleshing out that time where Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow first met. Yep. And him building that relationship with the Air Chicago clan. The first time they really spotlighted that. And, I, and um, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoyed working on that. And it, that's really what kind of built my interest back into G.I. Joe was obviously being involved yeah. 
in that, and specifically Snake Eyes. Yeah, well, I was going to say, and they did, uh, so they did the Snake Eyes, they did Scarlet, which was a one-shot, they did uh, Joe, G.I. Joe, which was a three-issue, and they did Dreadnoughts, which was a three-issue. All of those um, declassified issues were set before Marvel number one. So... Yeah, it was all kind of going back in, like, an Origins. Right. Um, I worked on Dreadnoughts, I think... I forget if it was issue two or three. I think issue two. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to do this with every book that we've that I worked on. But some of the, <laughs> these are just the early years that I... Sure. I don't have an antidote for every single issue. That would be stupid. But, well, you probably do, um, but... <laughs> I do, but then, then the show would be super long. But anyway, the for this issue, I remember it was a 40-page issue, which me being like, as soon as I hit page 20, I thought, oh, I should be done by now. But, like, I still had half an issue to draw. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is killing It took forever. I put a lot of time and effort into it. It was the best I could draw at the time. And and I was excited. I didn't have an inker. So this was also the first time I had to do an issue and not be able to rely on an inker to help me out at all. It's like my lines. Or your family or anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was real excited to see how this came out. And I was really trying to impress IDW at the time, all this, or, I mean, uh, Devil's Do at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they send it out to some like guy in Europe, overseas, some French guy, like to color it. Yeah. And it wasn't somebody they'd used before, and it came back, and it was all these like pastel colors <laughs> for whatever reason, <laughs> like these light purples and pinks, and like just super, I don't know, just like terrible, terrible color choices <laughs> for a biker book about a biker gang. Nice. I'm just like, what? This is terrible. I, that was the first time. I realized that as soon as the artwork leaves my hands, this is an assembly line process. And yeah. I do not have control over the final yeah. product. But I was just like, oh, so disappointing. <laughs> so then anyway, the okay. uh, Devils Do also did uh, Joe versus Transformers. There was actually four miniseries. Um, oh, but those were good. They were good. Um, that's when I still enjoyed Joe versus Transformers. Um, yeah. Well, you can get <laughs> – I'm going to let that one go. You can get <laughs> a nice hardcover collection of those. Yeah. Uh, there's like an omnibus that Devils Do put out, which is a really great hardcover. I mean, yeah. it's not in print anymore, but I'm sure you can find it. At- well, there's also IDW recently released four volumes of G.I. Joe versus Transformers. And what? Did they? Oh, in, okay. In trade right. paperback. I think it's four volumes. Let me hold on. No, yeah, I think you're right. And it's just in trade, it's, which I do like the fact that the Devils Do one is hardcover. But- yeah. It's three volumes. Um, three, yeah. And it reprints the original Marvel trade uh, or miniseries, and then it reprints all of these, uh, the four miniseries. The only thing it doesn't reprint, I believe, is the Dreamwave one, which was G.I. Joe versus Transformers, which was a six-issue series that was drawn by Jay Lee. And yeah. it takes place in like an alternate war- yeah, continuity. Yeah, crazy. Like World War Two. World War Two. Yeah. Oh, I love this one shot of Snake Eyes, and he's like in this, like, I yeah. don't know, this blowing fabric is all tattered, and he's just awesome designs. Man. Yeah, and I believe it was, uh, in fact, I'm almost positive it was Dreamwave that also did Divided Front, which was supposed to be another GI Joe versus Transformers, um, but they. That's when Dreamwave went under. <laughs> so yeah. all that ever came out was the one issue. The first issue came out. And that oh, was yeah. it. And Never I finished. think there's like so many different variant covers. I'm actually trying to get all of the variant covers because I was just like, well, it's one issue oh, that really? came out. <laughs> yeah. So 
Um, so you never know how it ended. It's just you just know the story and that's it, the beginning of the story. Right. But uh, but yeah, the Dreamwave one that took place during like World War II alternate reality type thing, I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I bought that issue when it came out. I wonder if I still have it. Yeah, and uh, some I read a review recently where somebody like totally tore it apart, and I was what? like, maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering it with too like too much nostalgia or something like that because I remember it being my favorite version of GI Joe versus Transformers. So I need to pull my issues out again and reread it and see if I still like it as much as I did when the first time I read it. So, well, I remember when I was reading it, I immediately thought, "Whoa, this is like a whole different time period." Oh yeah. And then that's as much thought as I put into it. Right. Like, it literally went from that and be like, "Okay," and then I just dove into the yep. story and re-loved it. Yeah. But if you try to fit it in any kind of context, it makes zero sense. No. It, yeah, it makes. So no I can sense see like somebody being like, "This doesn't fit into this continuity." Like, right. of course not. Right. Like, it's just a standalone what if. Yep. You know, and, it's, and that's what's so great about it. And then uh, Devil's Due also did G.I. Joe Reloaded, which you were mentioning before, which was uh, ran for 14 issues, and it was preceded by two one-shots, uh, G.I. Joe Reborn and Cobra Reborn. And, uh, which I, one of those? One of those was drawn by Dan Jurgens. Yeah, I can't remember which one. I, I do know what you're, That one was awesome. I just remember loving this series. Like, it was so good. It, it, was, it was like classic GI Joe. It just felt so like, but but drawn like very competently. You know? And it was like, way it was darker. <laughs> like, no, no, it was. It was yeah. like GI Joe Resolute in comic book form. Exactly. And it was a total reimagining. It was like forget what you knew about GI Joe before. I mean, you still kind of had to know what GI Joe and Cobra was, but. <laughs> But it was like any continuity you knew beforehand was out the window. Um, this right. was reintroducing the characters, redoing stuff with the characters and everything. And um, it was intense. And, of course, the one thing I loved about it was that Duke turned out to be a traitor in it. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew it. <laughs> um, and then all those times he was air quotes captured. Right. <laughs> it was just him, uh, re- re- you know. Just going back to report right. to home base. <laughs> um, then there were, uh, Devil's Due also did G.I. Joe Six Sigma, uh, or Sigma Six, I should say. Six Sigma. Sigma Six, a, yeah. Six Sigma is a business again, thing. <laughs> my, my friend Chris Sly was working on that too when that came out, but it was based on the cartoon. You yeah. Know, short-lived. And it was a six G.I. issue mini series that came out. Um, and then after all of that happened, Devil's Due lost the license and it went to IDW. Right. The what Devils you finished on was the GI Joe World War Three. Yeah. Which is in fact one of their best storylines. It's actually yeah nice contained GI Joe like maxi series. I think it's a twelve issue arc. It lasted that last year. Um, I had done the designs for the main bad guys in that with the plague, mm-hmm. you know, which were like heads of various Viper groups. You know, were put together into the Strike Force team. That yeah. Was, Super intense, you know. And I need to read yeah. that, but uh, I think I mentioned in a previous episode I'm missing one issue in the that takes place like it's the third or fourth part of the story, so I don't want to read it until I have that one part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a really good book. It's, yeah. Um, well, I've heard right, from a lot of people yeah. like that's their favorite Joe story. So yeah, it really is. It really is pretty fantastic, and it's good that they kind of ended on a high note, at, you know, so so to say. Yeah. Um. It was. I knew that September of 2007, 
that they were losing the license because I just knew Mike and we were talking about it. Yeah. Um, and I was like thinking at the time, man, that sucks. And he's like, no, it's, we're going to take a big hit. Like, that's too bad. It's, and I don't know the reasoning behind it, why they lost the license. But, yeah. um, but I remember talking to him and saying, well, whoever does it, uh, I, they better do a good job. Me and Mike both said that. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, whoever, wh- whatever publisher picks it up, like they better be, they better do it justice. And I was like, yeah, and whoever draws it better do a good job with it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither one of us knew who it was going to or what was going to happen. Little did you know that you were going to be drawing some of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's so bizarre how I ended up with that job. Yeah. It's so strange. Well, and uh, so IDW picked up the title. I'm not going to go into the history of IDW's run on the title because it's still going on. And if you want to know the history of IDW doing the title, go back to GI, uh, go back to Star Joe's episode zero. <laughs> yeah because or maybe probably episode one half uh because that's where we started was when mm-hmm. idw picked up the title so all the reviews are there i think i came what do you have any idea off the top of your head what episode um, was that you guys had me on as an interview i'm not sure off the top of my head um i definitely want to put that in the best of episode so there'll be a little snippet from that that's that's funny. In, yeah, I mean, this is years ago. I mean, it was yeah. I'd been working on it for a couple of years at the time, but yeah. still, it was. Uh, I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, when I was still working on it. So, um, so yeah, they'll definitely be part of our very first interview with you on that best of episode. Um, <laughs> I couldn't go back and listen to that. That's, yeah, that would crack me up. So. Um, but yeah, it, it like I said, I just I didn't. There's so much that IDW has done with the title that's and yeah. most of it's been amazing. Uh, that I mean, I, we could, we could it, if there's like a good, I don't, I don't know when would there would be a good time to do it, but we, we we could do an episode that's just like an IDW retrospective. Oh yeah, and I could and I could talk about like different behind the scenes stories that happened, but yeah, we could definitely, definitely do that. A different episode. Yeah. yeah, we could definitely make a whole episode out of that. That'd be awesome. I'm sure listeners would love that too. So, um, so going into some cartoons and then and then we can wrap things up <laughs> yeah i know we've been doing this for a while <laughs> but it's well worth it because again it G. it's Joe the des- 50th anniversary right gi joe deserves it so that's right um so the cartoons uh sunbow uh which we cover on the show yeah definitely <laughs> in all its glory yes yeah. did 95 episodes and from 1985 to 1986. So those 95... Two seasons. Yeah. Those 95... They did 95 episodes in two years. <laughs> that is just... That just boggles the mind. It's so ridiculous. Like, people complain now when it's like a uh, TV show lasts 24 episodes because they're just like, oh, that's too many, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. Like, this was 40-some episodes each year. <laughs> Television culture has changed so much. Yeah. Um... And related to that Sunbow cartoon, uh, we did get a voicemail uh, that I want to I want to go ahead and play for you. So, from uh, well, I'll just let you go ahead and hear it. (laughs) Hi, this is Captain Brad J. Armbruster. You is my code name of Ace. Recently, I started listening to the Star Joe's podcast because some good podcasts went off the air. Duke and I were listening to a lot of your podcasts, and uh, our feelings were hurt. I just want to let you know that flying an X-14 Sky Striker in combat is slightly harder than using an overpriced juicer. If you look at my records, you'll see it's slightly better than uh, the University of North Notre Dame's 
excuse me, football teams, had I been flying, Goose would still be alive. <laughs> that being said, I do enjoy your show, but I would love it if you could have uh, Jason, the fourth host, on a little more often. I also would like to give a shout out to Elaine. What's up, girl? Keep up the good work. Please <laughs> quit talking bad about me. So, uh, Ace, <laughs> so Ace called us. <laughs> He's not happy. Oh, with, he's not happy with us. No, I mean, I, I'm just saying facts are facts. I know. I mean, we're <laughs> we're just calling it like we see it, honestly. Right. right. It, I, I love a Ace. Defensive, just because of his own insecurities more than right. Ace. I mean, I love Ace, and um, he's obviously a big fan of Jason Adams. Um, well, I, I mean, who isn't? Right. I mean. Uh, <laughs> So uh, once again, that doesn't make Ace stand out. No, so, I don't. I don't know. I'm still doing my research, and I do have a running log. I've been gone back and I've started rewatching <laughs> all the episodes. Uh, I am doing this, and I have yeah. a, so far a running log of the number of Cobra Temples, nice, and the number. Of, oh, where did, I wrote it down. Here it is. Wait, wait, wait. Um, at the time, at the time, uh, in, in that the show was released, an F14. Tomcat, you know, which is obviously what the Sky Striker is based off of, right. was $38 million. Wow. Okay, that was the cost of one jet. Wow. And I'm using that to calculate the number <laughs> of Sky Strikers crashed by Ace himself. <laughs> also, the number of Sky Strikers that are shot down in combat. And then separately, the number of Sky Strikers that were bombed on the ground by Cobra. <laughs> which we are I'm I, you know I'm just starting again and I'm already in the double digits on that one yeah so yeah. if nothing else Cobra had almost crippled G, the whole G.I. Joe initiative <laughs> financially by just bombing the Sky Strikers as they were sitting there um, but anyway 38 million dollars Ace for every single one and we know for a fact that you crashed five of these <laughs> within the period of two episodes <laughs> Okay, whether that's a month or a week or two days, who knows? Knowing your record, well, in fairness, a pop. in fairness, he in the two episodes we watched, he crashed four of them because one of one of the planes that he crashed was the crop duster. <laughs> okay, so four sky strikers, four sky strikers, and a crop duster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to bother trying to calculate the crop duster, but I'll try to I look gotta, up the crop duster for you. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you can handle that one. <laughs> um, he obviously took some digs at me um, because I'm a Notre Dame fan, yeah, and yeah. the high-priced juicer comment is related to what I, who I work for as an employer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, I, I remember reaching out to Jason, Jason, and telling him that Ace is. Uh, we got a voicemail from Ace. And surprisingly, on the same day that Jason had reached out to me and asked me what the voicemail number was, um, we got the voicemail. So I, I was like, evidently, Ace is a big fan of yours. And he's like, wow, I'm really honored. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I thought since we were talking about the cartoon, it was appropriate to play that voicemail. All right, here, just a second. I'm, gonna, I'm looking up something real quick. Okay. Just, again, to... Prove a point here. Uh, 
Okay. So, oh, sorry. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm calculating $38 million. That's $38 million per plane in 19, what, 85? Yeah, around 1985, yeah. Oh, gosh. So I'm trying to use this calculator. <laughs> and apparently it's harder than a juice, juicer. <laughs> All right. Okay, I, it says I have to use increments less than ten million. All right, I don't know why. All right, so you have thirty-eight million, and how many planes are you going with? Just, um, I got a calculator here. Oh no! I mean, oh my goodness. Okay, oh my goodness. Okay, so taking in inflation into account okay so at the in 1985 10 million dollars is just short of 29 million dollars now okay so a 38 million dollar plane would be what so you would be doing math problems yeah <laughs> okay this is this is homework for us to do so the next time we're doing the gi joe review we'll have these answers for right because everybody wants to know how how costly it is to have Ace on the GI Joe team. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we are going to be getting to some big numbers here, Great. folks. Let me tell you. Who knew that me being a uh, advanced in advanced math classes would come back to haunt me one day? <laughs> I know, definitely not me. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll figure that out for a future right. episode. But um, so then in 1987, as as we mentioned, the cart, uh, the movie cartoon came out, and uh, after that movie came out, the show was canceled. <laughs> so, so it ended with that, and it wasn't until 1989 that uh, Deke came out with uh, some new episodes that took place after the movie. So there was actually two, almost two years where. There was no G.I. Joe cartoon, and then Deke came out with their cartoon that took place right after, well, shortly after the movie. Um, right. And, you know, I don't think I've watched the Deke stuff. I've seen like, I don't know, some episodes. I don't know episodes. if I've ever seen it. I've seen yeah. some episodes. We will eventually cover them. <laughs> and you think we're brutal to the Sunbow stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but there was two seasons of the the Deke stuff, so, um, and I know we've mentioned this many times, but the GI Joe animated movie intro is the best cartoon intro to anything ever created. Hands down. There's nothing. I mean, it's that, like a five minute intro to yeah, begin with. There's um, nothing that beats it. <laughs> no, I mean just the amount of action, the quality of animation. Uh, the the new song you know what I mean it's yeah. just so like gets you pumped like even today like yeah. I'll be driving around and my kids watch this, this movie over and over again and not even the full movie because it kind of creeps them out a bit yeah but just that opening sequence and then one of them it'll be quiet we're driving around and one will be like Cobra and everyone's like Cobra <laughs> and they'll just go back and say like I was like yeah I get so excited about that and it it's and it got me so pumped for the movie <laughs> Yeah. And then Cobra Law happened. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Which I don't hate Cobra Law as much as Chuck does. But now we're getting to like Star Brigade territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah. Um, so then after there was two seasons of the Deke cartoons and then, uh, in 1995, so there was no cartoons from like 91 until 1995 and, uh, we got GI Joe extreme that came out and it was based on the new toy line. And it, this cartoon was created by Sunbow again. So, and you can kind of tell that when you when you, if you've ever seen episodes of it well, or anything. Well, it is. It's definitely a stylistic change. I remember there being a lot more blacks, yes. like involved in the animation, and that actually wasn't happening very often. That people would use black in animation or like strong, right. bold, dark. Right. Like it was often just a very linear deadline weight, and then it was filled with color. You know what I mean? Which yep. kind of made, gave it that animated look. And I remember thinking, "Whoa, this looks way different because of all the blacks that were used." But yeah. And that ran from 1995 to 1997. Uh, Then, again, we had nothing (laughs) until 2003 when we got Spy Troops, which was like a, I believe I remember right, it was like a direct-to-video type thing that... um, I don't think I've seen that. I don't know. Is it it traditionally animated? I think it was tied into the the figures that were coming out because there were Spy Troop figures that came out. Wow. Um, then we had Valor versus Venom, which most people re- remember that. Oh, uh, so bad. Yes. <laughs> I tried watching that recently. I was like, hey, any Joe is better than bad Joe. No, that is not true. <laughs> that is not true. And that was 2004. So oh, that was it was horrific. Then we got Sigma Six, which was 2005 to 2007. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Sigma Six is when we started getting the six-inch Joe line, correct? It was a strange line. Everything was very angular. Yeah, it was yeah. A different format. Was it six inches or was it a little taller? I thought it was around six inches. Might be a little taller. I don't know. I think it's just taller enough to be awkward and annoying. <laughs> like, I think it's like six and three quarters. I, I can tell that you inches. really love that toy line. <laughs> uh, I got. A, I remember I got a few things from it. There's a few designs I actually did like it from it. Um, they but they just couldn't decide on a decent scale because they had the bigger ones. Oh, uh, it was actually eight do, inches. Yeah, but then they couldn't do uh, vehicles. Right. So then they had like these super tiny ones that were like two inches tall. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then they were the ones that came with the vehicles, and the vehicles were like this armored uh, like walker. Yep. It was like a mix between what they used in the Avatar movie and like the RoboCop robot you know what i mean just like that yeah. walk, that walker and then they had like this hovercraft with the two um side uh not a hovercraft but it was like a giant it kind of looked like the helicopter it had runners on the bottom yeah you know what i'm talking about it had a handle on the top and two um big fans you know like helicopter type blades on the sides yeah and again they used a similar design in the avatar movie <laughs> yep so and yeah there was later. like the ninja hover cycle Right, yeah, that came with the bigger figures. Right. There was the, let's see, I'm just looking at some of the, there was the Night Rangers quad with Duke. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they could just do those small personal right. type vehicles with the larger line. and So I think that was a little bit weird. If they had stuck with the smaller one, they could have done more vehicles. It might have been a longer running. Yeah, and going uh, back going back to the the Joe lines, like I was looking at some of the vehicles from the later Joe waves from like the original 82 to 94 uh, mm-hmm. waves 
and they got into like some of some of the Joe uh, personal vehicles. It was like an ATV, but when you looked at it, it looked like a, he was riding like a little scooter. It was like yeah. Joe yeah, yeah. was so much bigger than the vehicle he was riding. <laughs> what is this guy doing on this? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then in 2000, so the Sigma 6 went from 2005 to 2007. Then in 2008, we got, to me, is my favorite G.I. Joe cartoon ever, which is G.I. Joe Resolute. Yeah. And I mean, that was... It just hit, me, hit, the, hit the note of being mature yeah. and smart, um, but and also staying true to the basic relationships and characters. Yeah, it had the nostalgia um, with the maturity. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the perfect formula right now across the board. Like in in the comics, that's what they need in the yeah. uh but still, you know, like the designs were still based on those initial concepts of the character, you know, like they took some liberties, right? Yeah. Um for the medium and then also to update. But at the same time, you can look at each one of those guys and know it's gung-ho, right? Yeah. And know that it's Flint or Tunnel Rat. Or whoever is there, it's like you look at it and you know it's that character. There's no question. Yeah. And um, there was just like it begins with one of one of the uh, major bloods dying, and then um, Bazooka's dying. I mean, it's just spoiler alert, I guess. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's it added some uh, seriousness to it, like right off the bat. You had like entire cities, like oh yeah, blown away, and I was like, holy cow. Um, it's fantastic. It is so fantastic. That's one of the. I would love to see IDW do a comic based on that. Oh yeah, let me continue fan. that story on. It would be, be phenomenal. So phenomenal. And I have some of the action figures that they created out of that. So. I, I definitely have the Snake Eyes one, um, but I liked his. I liked his redesign for that. Yeah. Uh, with the sword at his belt and behind him, and with the half sleeve. Yep. Kind of a. Uh, uh, half tone and i used that when we did the snake eye series i was definitely referencing that yep um and then we didn't get any other uh cartoons until 2010 which is when we got gi joe renegades which i can't believe that was 2010 it seems like it was just like last year or something like that that we got that i know a a couple neat kind of comic comic tie-ins dan norton was a comic artist in the late 90s and early 2000s and he ended up being the art director for Resolute uh, or not art director character designer and prop designer for yeah. J.I. Joe Resolute and then he then went on to become the art director and producer of the Thundercats TV show yeah so that's kind of a neat I, I've heard of Dan I've been familiar with his work before he ever worked on that stuff and then for the and, and they did this kind of like as a pet project and a promotional uh, Avenue, their whole Resolute thing, mm-hmm. um, they had no idea it would get the the response it did. Yeah. And when it came out, it had the highest ratings that Cartoon Network has ever had. Yeah. And they were just for these small five-minute blurbs, you know, that would yeah. come on in between shows. Nobody expected that. And then once they started getting the numbers in, they were just floored by it. But the whole design team had already moved on to start working on Thundercats and other things. Yeah. So there was no way that they could recapture that exact same team. Right. And Warren Ellis wasn't going to come on and write for an entire series. You know what I mean? So they decided to then, well, there's obviously an interest for a G.I. Joe animated series. And they retooled everything to do G.I. Joe Renegades. Yeah. But they knew that Resolute was a more mature audience level. They needed to tone that down a bit for a mass 
demographics and audience for Renegades. But another cool thing is they brought in uh, Clement Suave or Clem. Uh, he was a, another comic book artist who had worked on uh, Infantry for Devil's Due, that uh-huh. short-lived uh, kind of military-based comic. And then uh, he had worked on, I think, just mainly covers for G.I. Joe. For Devil's Due, okay. He was the, he's the production. He was uh, he worked in the same studio as Yannick Paquette. He's a yeah DC guy who did Swamp Thing and all this stuff recently. Yeah, really really cool guy. I met him a few times at shows, and he unfortunately passed away. Um, he's right about he's my age. He passed away a couple years ago. Yeah, um, but he uh, he was the co- character designer for all of the Renegade stuff, which I thought oh, always wow. thought was really cool. He was able to work cool. on that more. Yeah, um, Renegades, I actually really liked it the more I watched it. Like, when it first started, I was like, this is a little odd, because it was basically G.I. Joe meets the A-Team. Yeah, it, it, it really was. I mean, it was like the premise that they were yeah. wrongly accused, they're driving around in a van. Right, yeah. <laughs> trying to clear their names, you know what I mean? Like, it, it was totally the A-Team. Yeah, and um, um, the thing I initially had a problem with was the uh, the Vipers, that like the, the Galobulus... Or not globulous, but like the gelatinous um, viper type things, and yeah. I was, and they kind of started moving away from them. But I eventually I didn't even mind them. Um, the problem I had was, uh, which I had a problem with the live action movie was was the character Ripcord, um, because they made him like they had him as if he was killed off in the first episode, and then they brought him back, and here he was like an amalgam of that gelatinous viper and Ripcord. So he had like the powers to like stretch his arms out and all this type of stuff, and I was like, yeah, eh. it just got a bit too sci-fi again. Yeah, it got to and be, like too superhero, you know, not really. It it just deviated a little too much from what we consider the what makes GI Joe. Yeah, G.I. Joe, you know what I mean. And the, I think when they started to, I think they started realizing that, and they started going away from having him even in the episodes. Um, because they started realizing that people weren't enjoying those episodes and they actually came out with like when they would do episodes where you'd see like law and order or, um, uh, you know, there was a whole, like they just started introducing all these characters. I'm trying to remember some of the other characters they brought in, but then like they all came together at the end in the last episode and it was just so awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was like seeing GI Joe form, which was what I really liked about renegades by the time it was finished. Um, yeah, and, you've got to kind of stomach quite a bit of stuff that's like very non-traditional GI Joe, right? And and be able to sit through that, and then kind of appreciate it completely separately, and just for what it is, just yeah. like kind of action adventure cartoon. Yep. But then by the time you get to the end, you really start seeing the they hit the those notes of yeah what makes GI Joe cool, and it's really it, it builds to that. So by the time you, if if you can kind of sit through that and not be so hung up on is this my GI Joe or not, yeah. Like then, by the time you get to the end and you're invested in their version of the characters, there's a payoff. Yeah, there's a huge payoff because by the time they got to the end, I was like, okay, because by the time they got to the end, you had Flint uh, becoming part of the group also because before that he was just chasing down Duke. I know and the that, rest that of always them. like bugged me. <laughs> yeah, initially, it'd be like him and Lady J, and the relationships changed so much. Yeah, you know, just across the board um but there was cool things they were doing like they had michael bell at doing the voice of the father of duke and stuff like that so there was like cool things like that that they did 
And so there was, they were starting to bring in that nostalgia and everything else. And like I said, when they got to the end with the last shot with the group and they brought Flint in and, and everything else, he was no longer chasing them and everything else. I was like, now I want another season. Now I want a season of this team mm-hmm. going up against Cobra and stuff like that. Um, there were certain design things I didn't care for overall, but like uh, Destro's mask was completely ridiculous. He, yeah. Um, the chomper mouth on it and everything else, but but there was some really cool things. Like I thought they did Snake Eyes really well, and the whole Ninja Clan uh, stories and everything else were really awesome. Like I said, then when they would bring in certain characters, um, I thought it was done really well. I actually liked what they did with Dreadnoughts, making them like this biker gang. Um, of mercenaries and stuff like that. I thought that was done well. Um, so there was a lot of things I started really liking as I kept watching the episodes and everything else. So um, it's much like, for me, it's much like almost like the Thundercat, the new version of the Thundercats. Like I feel like if it had a chance to go another episode or another season, mm-hmm. it would have gained the viewers because I knew people that didn't like Renegades, but they kept watching it and most people told me the same thing the same thing i felt which is that they felt like it was getting better every episode yeah i I think so it's just one of those that when you start off with such a departure from you know just those classic uh character relationships yeah or, or or established character personalities or traits character traits you know of your main characters like there was a lot of differences yeah um, and it was just a little too. It was just a little too much. I think for the average fan to, to yeah. take and, and stick with it, you know. And that was enough that for those who did stick with it and then enjoyed the payoff, yeah, like it, you know, it's just kept it from continuing. And I do have the um, the episodes on DVD, so I actually do want to sit down sometime and watch them again because uh, there's not a lot of them, but I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, just that single season, but there's a there's a lot of neat uh, moments, especially to pick out from yeah. it, but. Uh, and then we have the live action movies, uh, which is not the best thing to close on, but it's the last thing <laughs> it's out what there. what we got. You know, what, what can you say? <laughs> right. Uh, so we had The Rise of Cobra in 2009, and we had Retaliation in 2012, which I thought Retaliation was a much better movie than, than Rise of Cobra. Um, there were still elements in Rise of Cobra I liked, but it overall was not really... It wasn't to to you know, coin a phrase it, of Keith Knutson. It wasn't my GI Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, you know, it it was an interesting thing because I went with Elaine and uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Hayes, uh, who is just a big '80s fan, comic shop you know manager up in uh, Chicago. And we went to go see it the in 2008 mm-hmm. or 2009. It came out whenever that summer. Um, and I remember that because I was up in at a convention in Chicago, uh, and it came out. We went to the Thursday night midnight showing, um, and uh, like Ray Ray Park was at that convention. That was the first yeah. time I met him and talked to him quite a bit. Um, so I was really jazzed about this, and so we went to see it. Um, I came out excited, like man, I want to go buy some toys. Yeah, I was just like I was pumped. And it was just mainly seeing Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow on screen fighting yeah. more than anything. And I remember feeling like big action, you know, like the the team is out to go and fulfill a mission. You know, like I was excited about that. Yeah. You know, since then, as I've gone back to watch it, obviously it doesn't hold up. You know, there's just some yeah. dumb, dumb choices. And, and there's I mean, a lot of movies like that where I walk out of the theater and I'm like, oh, that was fun. That was cool. And, so, and then, then your brain starts working. And you're yeah. like... <laughs> 
You're like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And you know, and then for the second movie, um, you know, I think the choices that that they were made, they could either just completely whitewash the movie property or try and salvage it as best they can. And I think you know what they did were doing was the second movie was a transitional film that if it could go on to three movies, you know, John Chu he would have more and more freedom to make it the movie he wanted to, but he was still beholden to some of the what was established yeah. in that first movie. Yeah. Um, I think he had no the choice. representation of Cobra Commander is done so much better in that second movie. Um, Fly, Firefly is a very redeeming character, I think. Um, that Obviously, that Snake Eyes Mountain scene. Yeah. And, you know, it, and there's just a lot of good things. Um, yeah, again, there's stuff I wish that could have been done better, but I think yeah. it led, was leading to the potential of, you know, a really decent third G.I. Joe movie, but yeah, and there's me being optimistic, maybe. No, and there and there's been a lot of talks, and there's been a lot of things said that there will be a third G.I. Joe movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm kind of interested to see what they do now, you know, that they've kind of established a better direction for it. Because um, I think there was a lot of really good things in the second one. So, um, so I'm looking forward to see them develop that a little bit more. I'm um, hoping we don't get a whole new complete team. I would like to, them to take the team that we saw in the second movie and just add one or two more Joes, you know, like, you know, at the most three or four new Joes, yeah. and that's it. I don't think, I don't want to see a whole new team like we saw from the first to second movie. Like, the first movie was all these characters, and the second movie, it's all these characters. So. <clears throat> no, I think what they could do. Is even take some of the the characters from the first movie, like reintroduce Scarlet, yeah, uh, especially, um, and just say that, you know, uh, GI Joe wasn't completely wiped out. It was just who was there at the time. Where you know these were the Joes that were left, and then everybody else was either on missions at the time, and yeah, you know, it, it took a while for them to get back in touch, or, or who knows, they could come with all kinds of excuses. Because I'd love to see uh, Rachel Nichols. That's her name, right? Rachel Nichols. Yeah. I come back as Scarlet. I think she would does, did a well, a good job, and and do a scene with Lady J and. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Um, well, to end on a on a couple high notes, one thing I wanted to just talk about because uh, I know you you kind of jotted some stuff down, and I jotted some stuff down as far as just vehicles and figures and stuff like that like that held some nostalgia for us and like we're not going to touch on everything but just kind of mentioning a few things that kind of really stood out from stuff we grew up with and everything else so um obviously the big thing for me from my childhood was the uss flag just because that was awesome in every way shape and form mm-hmm. um but i also had the battle platform that was like my other playset. Um, See, yeah, I never had that. That's yeah. really cool. I never had the Terradrome. Uh, I always wanted that. but um, So I didn't really have a base for my Cobra people. I had to make my own base for them. Yeah. Um, I have the Terradrome, uh, the Creo version of Terradrome now, uh, which is pretty cool. So, mm-hmm. um, And I think those are half off now at Toys R Us. So, like, go look for them. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but some of the vehicles I remember from my childhood, I had the Vamp. Uh, the APC was awesome. That thing was so cool. Yeah. And so durable, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those, like, practical, 
yeah. vehicles. You know, just throw all your figures in there, and it makes sense. Yep, take them to battle. Um, yep. I had, I did have a Sky Striker, uh, which was also really awesome, and I had the Conquest. So I had the two jets um, that came yeah. out. Um, I did not have the whale as a kid, but I have it now. So I'm. Uh, yeah, that was always one I was jealous of my my friends. They had that. Yep. Uh, I never had the Mobat, but I did have the Mauler, and the Mauler had the motorized, so you could like flip the switch and it would just go forward and run over everything. Just run over all <laughs> kinds of Joe figures. Yep. Or, or I mean Cobra figures. I mean yeah. they would just it would just, it, I would just it, line them up. It didn't discriminate. It ran over everybody. No, not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I did have the Moray. Uh, ah, wow. It's the Hydro That thing point. was a beast. That thing is huge. Yeah, I got that the same year I got the USS Flag. So. That came out in 85, yeah. Yeah. So um, I had the, and that would just run up against the, the flag, and like the Cobra agents would jump off and get onto the flag and everything. Oh, that's so cool. It was awesome. Um, awesome. I had the Snowcat, which I love that vehicle. Yeah, um, that one is really good. Yeah. And I also like the shoot now I can't the wolf something the wolf the cobra wolf that was my last vehicle I got as a kid that was mm-hmm. GI Joe related was the cobra wolf and I've got it recently um, out of nostalgia because it was one of the last vehicles I got but the cobra wolf was as equally as cool as the snowcat so yeah yeah um, I had the awe striker which was a lot of yeah. fun I had the cobra raven which. That was a huge. The night raven, the, the night, yeah, the night raven. Yeah. That thing was huge. That was sleek, man. It was a really big jet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I love I, that it had the separate little plane that pulled off. The yeah, back. that was so cool. Like the two part. Yep. And then I had uh, the tomahawk. Uh, yeah. Which I've gotten the uh, I've gotten the recent version of that. Um, the havoc I had, which. That was one I always wanted. I thought it was just a bizarre but fun design like yeah that was the coolest and that was kind of that was kind of the start of the weird vehicles it really was like a completely glass canopy yeah you better hope that's bulletproof otherwise (laughs) you're just gonna completely kill whoever's laying on their stomach to drive this right this made no sense but the part i loved about it was the little vehicle that came out the back of it again now this little floating hovercraft thing that was just like escape pod like my driver's dead again i gotta get out of here yeah. Um, and then two of my favorite vehicles, my all-time favorite vehicles. One was uh, a Joe vehicle, which is the Devilfish. So the little orange boat that I would always put wetsuit in it and have them take off. And, it, and that thing flew across carpeting. Like you just <laughs> slide it across carpeting. And that sucker would just go. <laughs> but it also floated, so I was able to take it in the pool also. Yeah. So... That was cool. Um, the other one that I absolutely loved was the Dreadnought's Thunder Machine. Um, it was a beast. Which had uh, rubber tires. Yeah. And you could beat the crap out of the thing. I would launch that thing off the top of the stairs. <laughs> and it would be fine. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Yeah, that thing, that thing was durable. Yeah. So, so those uh, are some of me, my favorites. Yeah. For me, vehicles were the highlight of the Joe, um, just of the you know everything that came out, and it's, and not even that I had a lot of them. I just I think probably envied all the all the ones that my friends had. Um, I had a few, and the ones I had, I definitely had a Sky Striker, and I absolutely this was like my favorite toy. It came out in '84, and I was really young at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my 
my aunt and uncle that got it for me. And I was, you know, I was, I was tiny, you know, I was like five years old when this came out. Um, but it was just like my prized possession, you know, um, yeah. Other, my brothers had, got a lot of figures, but I got the vehicle and it was like, they were all jealous of what I had. And, and I, I just like would go to sleep with this thing. I mean, like <laughs> I loved the sky striker. So whenever, um, we did have a buddy who lived <clears throat> down the block that had his aircraft carrier. And I was like, I had to try and come up with any excuse to go over to his house. Like I didn't even like that guy, <laughs> but I just wanted to land my sky striker on his aircraft carrier and take it off and blow and, people away. Like, and his name best. was Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, I mean, for me, like, hands down my favorite vehicle is the sky striker and it's like now i've got like six or seven of them it's just ridiculous but yeah um but it was just destroyed because i mean i loved it but i just i played with it every day you know what i mean so it just i just beat the crap out of it and um i later on um i didn't get it then but i got a cobra rattler i think from a buddy of mine i traded a ton of baseball cards for it like a few years later yeah so that i could finally do like those you know just air battles and stuff and that was the coolest um, I, I had the bridge layer, which again is why he's like, <laughs> why I, lo- I love that vehicle and toll booth. Um, cause we would go to our, our elementary school that was like right across the street from our house and we would go in onto the playground after school or throughout the summer. And we would just dig huge potholes in the middle of their yard, <laughs> in the middle of the lawn at the, at the elementary school. And bring in the bridge layer. And they were like, here comes the bridge layer. Like, I needed an excuse to use this as a viable vehicle. (laughs) That's awesome. I was like, we could just drive around this big hole, but we got a bridge layer, my friend. So they (laughs) put that down. We ride over it. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had the smaller ones, you know, like the Ram Cycle and the Vamp I love. Right. uh, I never had like the APC. It was something I, I would have liked. And, yeah. You know, there were those. I had the, the, like the bizarre, like some of the bizarre little or you know or smaller. Um, yeah, I had the one. It was like the. It had the big. I'm trying to remember the name. It was like the weapons transport. It was like it was like a um, airport luggage trolley type thing. But what it was pulling was a giant bomb. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you're like, man, this seems like a good target. Yeah. Um, the other thing I remember having, because uh, I saw it in the list of stuff, was uh, one of the backpack uh, accessories that had the wind-up feature. It was the earth borer, and it would actually connect to the back of, like, where the backpacks would go on the on the figure's back. But then it would, like, you'd take it off, and it, there was no way a figure could stand with this thing on its back, by the way. Um, it was, like, as big as the figure. <laughs> And then yeah. you take it off and you'd stand it up. It stood like an R2-D2 where it had like two legs. And then mm-hmm. it had the handles that your figure could hold. And then you'd wind it up and it had a little drill on the front of it that would spin. <laughs> so. I remember there's, I mean, I had like a, the little trouble bubble, you know, those Cobra fly yeah. pods. I had those. I had the Cobra Fang, you know, I mean, which all of these death traps, like flying death traps. Like, yeah. Made zero sense. I mean, there were some... Uh, that I remember at the time I'm thinking like super cool like the Cobra Mamba yeah um, but it's just like a bizarre design you yeah. know what I mean like it doesn't make a lot of sense you know there's yeah. of course like the ones that came out later you know like the Cobra Pogo right like those little 
bubble pod with like you know bouncy legs on it they give you a concussion as it bounced around yeah. <laughs> exactly the um, board did you get did you have one of the vector jets no i didn't that was that was a strange design too which yeah. i think i might or like the um the sergeant slaughter one what was that called oh the you're talking about his little tank thing yeah his little white tank yeah you, know, you just fit one dude in you know, yeah i didn't have that um those those all came later you know what yeah I mean? but yeah, that and the um, the shark and the whale were like the three things I didn't have that I really, w- as far as vehicles go, that I really wish I had. It also didn't have a dragonfly. The dragonfly would have been cool to have. Oh, that would have been. Um, yeah, that was. Or the skyhawk. I didn't have any of the skyhawks either. I had. The, I have never had that one. I mean, yeah. I had all the little small figures because or vehicles because I went and I always wanted to buy a vehicle. It was worth it to me to spend that little extra money because you get a figure yeah. anyway. Oh yeah. But you had something for them to interact with, you know. So whenever I bought a Joe for myself, it was I would always save up and get the vehicle. Well, obviously from buying. obviously from hearing the vehicles I had, a lot of mine were like Christmas presents or, or yeah. birthday presents. So they were always like the big vehicle that I ended mm-hmm. up with. I didn't have a lot of Cobra stuff though. Like I had a lot of Joes, but I I had a lot of Cobra figures, but I didn't have a lot of Cobra vehicles. Um, yeah, I get, yeah. The only thing I had was the Fang, the Trouble Bubble, and the Rattler that I got. Yeah, I had the Night Raven. I had the the Moray, and I had. Um, uh, I remember having the uh, Stun, the Cobra Stun. Oh yeah, yeah. Which again, which horrible I remember, design. I, I always wanted that one. It was a horrible design, because you. No, no, not the Stun. I wanted the Stinger. That's what I wanted. Yeah, the Stun was horrible. It was like, it was a tricycle basically. And and you'd swing out one side and it would tip over. <laughs> if you swung out both sides, it could still stay up. But if you only swung out one side, it would tip over. <laughs> so, um, so a couple other things I just wanted to mention, not related to Joe, um, but uh, one. Well, this one's semi-related, Joe. Uh, one of our listeners, Ryan Smith, uh, good first name by the way. Um, he's got a Kickstarter going on. It's called Iron Iron Cobra versus the PCP Army, and it's a comic that he's trying to to publish. And it's a, it is a Kickstarter campaign. It ends on December sixteenth. This episode should be out before then, so check it out. Uh, it if it's something of interest to you. Um, it kind of reminds me from what I saw. It's very eighties looking, and it it reminds me a little bit of like a GI Joe Extreme, in, right. in a sense. So. Um, so check that out. Um, the other thing I wanted to just because I know we have a lot of listeners that were wondering, uh, and we can talk about this in more detail in a future episode, but um, not related to Joe, but what were your thoughts about the Star Wars trailer? Oh yeah, um, wow. Uh, I mean, it, it's I loved it. It seemed like it was just a series of images. Yeah. You know, it, it, there wasn't any kind of suggestion of story. It, Which is what a like, what a teaser like, hey, this should. This is what do. we've got done so far, and none of it ties together. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the job of a teaser trailer. And like that was one of the complaints I heard from people. Oh, well, it didn't tell me anything. I'm like, it's not supposed to tell you anything. It's it's a teaser trailer. It's just images. Here, get it's, excited. <laughs> it's just supposed to make you drool. I like you know, right. just the concept. I mean, I love that it has the old school feel of yeah. like the, the original trilogy it has that feel I mean, it's just because you're seeing the Millennium Falcon like fly around yeah. or X-Wings or you know um, but 
I am so excited for it to be back in that realm. Yeah. You know, of, of the, I have been so excited since I watched it. Like I watched it the first, the first time I watched it, like I was ready for it. I stayed up till midnight on Thanksgiving because they said it was supposed to be released (laughs) Friday morning. And I was like, well, Friday technically is after midnight. So I stayed until like stayed up to like one o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving just to see if it would if they would show it that late, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, the next morning I watched it the second I could and and posted it on the fan page on Facebook and stuff like right. that. And I watched it and afterwards I was like, okay, I need to watch that about fifty more times. And, <laughs> and it was just it was awesome. I was pumped. Um, I did hear a review where they were saying like. Um, you could tell it's being directed by a different director because some of the shots and angles George Lucas would have never done, like the Falcon flying around like it did and everything else. Oh, yeah. And I totally agree with that. But like you said, even though it's a different perspective, it still had the nostalgic feel to it. Well, I think it, I mean, you can, you can tell with the way J.J. Abrams, some of the shots he chose for Star, Star Trek that he yeah. was homaging, you know, the original trilogy of Star Wars. Right. Um, so he obviously has an absolute love for the property and wants to do it justice, you know, but he has his own directorial like eye, you know, yeah. and, and that comes across. And I think fantastically, I cannot wait. I think yeah. I'm really, really excited about it. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's been complaints about the little soccer ball droid thing, which I think is awesome. Um, no, and- I mean, just have fun with it. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we're into the future of, you know, this, world so there's no reason why there can't be innovations and there should be and i'll take that over the lizard rabbit with a speech impediment any day of the week (laughs) (laughs) um i i really like the little rollerball droid because it it, it's kind of kind of like an astromech droid but a little bit different um from what i heard it's supposed to be like the personal droid of daisy ridley's character um, I've heard that Daisy Ridley's character is supposed to be rumored to be the daughter of Han Solo and Princess Leia. Um, and that uh, I loved the John Boyega being in the Stormtrooper armor. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard different things when it comes to that. But the thing I loved about it was seeing him without the helmet on and everything else. It reminded me of Luke and Han in the first movie right. wearing the armor. Um it was rumored that the when you, they showed the stormtroopers that Boyega was the shorter stormtrooper that you saw in the lineup because there is one stormtrooper when the, that real quick flash when they show the stormtroopers, like there's one yeah. that's a little bit shorter than the other ones, and they're saying that that was John Boyega, which cracks me up because again a nod to the original movie of like you're kind of short for a stormtrooper. Right. Um, there were some complaints, of course, about the lightsaber blade. I think it's freaking awesome. I think it's great, and I think. Um, you know, because the lightsabers were always traditionally designed or built off of kind of traditional Japanese yeah. you know, katana blades or... Yep. Or, um, and this one's and built the, more like a claymore. Exactly. I mean, it just kind of gave that feel of, you know, just using other yeah sword references. And I thought that was neat. And then I absolutely love that Stephen Colbert clip. Yes. That's the best. I yes. mean, that was so hilarious. He's like, when you are where I am next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, yeah, you've got to watch it. I think yeah. you, you put a link up, right? On yeah, I did. I put so it on the funny. fan page and everything. But the thing is, too, like, I agree with what he's saying. Like, cause people are saying, oh, you could cut right through that metal and then it'll de- it, it defeats the purpose. And I'm like, that metal is just to protect the guy's hand. The blade could, the lightsaber blade could still be in that area. 
So if they come down with their lightsaber, it could it'll just cut through that metal and it'll still stop it right there. Mm-hmm. So um, so I love the design of it. I know it crackles and everything else, which some people were like, "What's the deal with that?" And I think it's like supposed to be more powerful than a typical lightsaber, and that's why it crackles like that. Um, there's been rumors. I don't know if there's any truth behind it, but there's been rumors that that figure that we see is actually Luke. Um, that, oh, wow. that shows the blade because the rumor is that Luke's been missing for a while and everyone's looking for him, but he's kind of turned that he might actually be the the threat in this first movie. Um, oh, which goes back to what my original thought was like a year ago when I said it'd be awesome if Luke was the bad guy. <laughs> um, Man, that would be taking such a huge risk. Yeah, but that could be the awesome reveal. And like I said, it's just rumors. It's I'm sure it's just people throwing out ideas. But I was like, that would be awesome because that figure, I don't know if you ever saw, there was concept art before the trailer came out that showed that same robed figure with that Claymore-type lightsaber, and he's wearing a mask, almost like uh, Darth Re- uh, Reven's mask. Mm-hmm. And I was, and so that's why people are like, there's a rumor that maybe that's Luke underneath the mask. So, um, which would be totally awesome because his dad <laughs> was Vader. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. So, um, so yeah, I think it'll be pretty awesome. I, uh, I am super pumped with it. I, you know, the music got me. The the scenes got me. The seeing the X wings going over the water that was amazing. Um, yeah, I am super pumped, super excited. Um, like I, I kept trying to think of ways that we could do this show, like right after seeing the movie, like, <laughs> like, yeah, really. Like I want to go to the movie and then record. But the problem is I'm probably gonna go see the movie at like a midnight showing and then I'm going to be tired and I'm not going to want to record. <laughs> well, and you'll be seeing it probably an hour before me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we'd have to record after that. I'll so just have to wait an hour, then record. I'll just text you spoilers and stuff. <laughs> I'm not taking my phone. <laughs> just leave it at home. I would never do that to anybody. <laughs> um, but no, we'll have to record like sometime right after it, like not yeah. right after it, but you know, like days after uh, yeah, seeing it sure. and stuff like that to keep the ex- you know the enthusiasm. I'll probably have already seen it like seven times by the time we record, but. Um, <laughs> Because I will take the day off after, like, I'll go to a midnight showing, like, Thursday night, and then I'll take Friday off and go see it two or three more times. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. That'll be so good. Okay. So, all right. So, that's everything. Uh, happy 50 years of G.I. Joe. Uh, absolutely awesome. I'm sure there's 20,000 things we forgot or didn't cover or whatever. Um, we can't cover it all, but that's where you guys come in, you know, send us emails, uh, send us, you know, respond on Facebook, respond on Twitter, send us messages, uh, go on the forums, tell us the stuff that you remember about Joe, stuff you love about Joe, anything we Yeah, missed. the stuff we talk about, what, you, what was your first figure? What was, you know, some of the, the, the most memorable vehicles or file uh, cards, how you played with them, you know, the file cards you liked and so. all that kind of stuff. Like the stuff we talked about kind of, what was your impression of joe growing up how did you get into it was it through the figures the comics or the cartoon and then we forgot to mention the most important date ever in joe history which was that star joe started in <laughs> january of 2010 so oh, man. um 
so with that to remind everyone we do have a contest going on we've had a few submissions already not a lot but a few submissions send me through an email at starjoespodcast at gmail.com your favorite moment from Star Joe's. Please tell me the episode that it was in and what the moment was and if you're in the U.S. or outside the U.S. So it's as simple as that. You don't have to tell me the exact time in the episode. Just tell me the episode it was in and what your favorite moment was and I'll find it. And it'll go in, uh, it'll be released. That moment will be part of a best of episode that will come out in January, on January 4th of 2015, which will be exactly the five-year anniversary of this podcast starting so um so let me go ahead and give our information out you can find us at starjoes.com you can find us at the formforgeeks.com that's where you can interact with us every day you can find us on facebook like us on facebook uh follow us on twitter and people are interacting with us like crazy on there which is awesome uh please feel free to post anything you guys want on the fan page as well we have a few people that do that but you know that page is your guys as much as it is ours so Please feel free to post as much as you want. Um, and uh, leave us a voicemail. It's 440-941-JOES, 440-941-JOES. Uh, let's see. Uh, Twitter is at Star Joe's Podcast. Uh, let's see. iTunes. Please leave us an iTunes review, and we will read it on the air. And good, bad, or indifferent. I don't care if it's you know one star. That's fine. Uh, we'll read it and ridicule you. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can also find us on Stitcher it, uh, Stitcher Radio it's a free app for your mobile devices and you can make Star Joe's one of your favorites so um, I believe that's everything Robert how can they find your stuff uh, just uh, through Robert Atkins Art on Facebook and Twitter and my blog is robertatkinsart.blogspot.com where I post uh, a lot of the updates of what I'm working on right now I am doing a G.I. Joe themed month called Joe a Day and that'll run right up to Christmas um, and all the proceeds of any uh, print and sketchbook sales will be donated to the Star Joe's uh, Toys for Tots campaign awesome. which you can uh, donate off of the, um, the Star Joe's website just on the right you know you can make a donation there and just in the as you do so just in the the comment or subject section you can just write for toys for tots and then leading up to on december 16th is the last day that they're taking donations then with whatever money has been donated between my blog and the star joe's site um then we'll go out and buy toys take pictures of those and let everybody in on you know everything that was able to be donated from you know from the support of the listeners yep absolutely that'll be awesome all right well with that we'll go ahead and close by saying the force will be with you Because knowing us is half the battle. Take care, everyone. He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. It's here, the G.I. Joe collection. Infantry troopers. Codename Grunt. Bazooka soldier. Codename Zap. Motor soldier. Codename Short Fuse. Laser rifle trooper. Codename Flash Ranger. Codename Stalker. Communications officer. Codename Breaker. Machine gunner. Codename Rock and Roll. Counterintelligence. Codename Scarlet Commando. Codename Snake Eyes. Each sold separately. G.I. Joe from Hasbro.